As long as we're fucking audible, you better be happy. Yeah, it's. But also, we need Patreon money to buy audio. If you, gear. if you, yeah. if you happen to be an audio nerd and you're rich, feel free to subscribe to the Patreon. Patreon. I really want to get a better mic than this. I want the Joe Rogan style mic, real bad. So he's a millionaire. Subscribe. What are you thinking? He's, yeah, dude, that's like a long ways off. Well, does that mean his microphone is a million dollars? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> He spent a year's pay on a microphone. When you're a millionaire, every single thing you buy is a million (laughs) dollars. Instead of Dollar General, it's Million Dollar General. He just goes in there. (laughs) He's like in. It's just in Hollywood on the Hollywood like mountainside. I mean, his audio, his AV setup is almost certainly over a million dollars. That's no question. Yeah, he's got like. um, Although his new setup is, is. not as good as his previous one. I don't know if I you guys agree. watch like the r- na- contemporary Rogan no, I don't. video stuff, but like he's in like a weird like uh, s- I don't know Elon Musk style like space container. It looks like he's underground. Yeah, it has a it has way more of a yeah. bunker feel to it. There's like less, which I'm sure he was going for. <laughs> yeah, I get. I bet you're right. I bet you're right. Um, but hey, yeah, hey, hey, Spinecrackers, welcome. Welcome, and welcome to that magical, soothing, s- sultry fourth voice you just heard. We have a very special guest this evening. That's right. Uh, original OG friend, not only of the pod, but of the three of us individually since <laughs> IRL. way IRL since <laughs> way back. It's great. And patron of the podcast, it's Casey, folks. What's up, Casey? It's Casey. Hey, guys. Thanks for welcoming me on. Uh, yeah. OG friend, recent patron. Facts. Love the content. Look forward to it. Just crave it every Friday. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm just a big Murakami, big Murakami boy. Also, yes, our th- the resident, no pressure, but the resident Murakami expert for the evening. <laughs> yeah, I don't, no I, I don't know about that, expert. but we'll, that's, we'll see. It's well, a, we did, that's the role you we, have now. We did, establish, sorry, but... we did establish that you have read more unique Murakami books than all the three of the rest of us put together before we started, so. Oh, man. That's a lot of pressure. You have us on, on word count and page count. You've, you've read thousands more <laughs> words yeah. than we have. By you've Quantitatively, lifted, yeah. Your muscles you've lifted. have lifted more of these fat Murakami tomes than, which is why you're, you're, you're life and strong and successful, and I'm a fat slob. Yeah, this is the chunkiest book I've ever read. Is that true? It's yeah. the biggest one? Chunkiest, wow. the biggest book I've ever read. You know what? I'm, now that make, now that's making me wonder, like, what's the longest book I've ever read? This is up there, I think. Yeah, well, certainly. we can measure it right now, see how long it is. 
Paul, you got to get your uh, you got to get your, your whatever your drug dealer scale that you had that could take. Yeah, it down oh, I have like it right here. No, 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 <laughs> dude. The length of an ounce. The width and length is fucking. That's Patreon only content, baby. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> Too hot for fucking Zoom. <laughs> um. Yeah, this, this actually might be the longest book I've ever read, too. I don't think about it. I'm trying to think what I would have read that's been longer. One pound, th- uh, two ounces. Okay. <laughs> nice. Leaves of Grass has a <laughs> Leaves of Grass has an ounce on it, I think. Yeah. That's no, you the mean House of, House of Leaves? <laughs> leaves of Grass. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> I can't, dude. I can't be embarrassing myself this early. Oh my god, Matt! It's that's the, the quickest Matt fuck exclamation yet. Three minutes fifty seven seconds. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> Matt, to be to be fair though, when you get something wrong, it's it's like a simple mix up like that. It's not it's something that I do. also also to be fair, you're a dumb dumb baby who doesn't no. know anything. <laughs> oh my Gabe. <laughs> Gabe's a bully. Know this, Casey. Gabe's a bully, and if you mess up even, if you slip up even I know, a little bit, I'm, I will slip. And true. I Give this man an inch, it. he will take a mile. That is That's not all I got to say about it. That is not true. I'm a ve- I'm very jam. I'm a very generous interlocutor. <laughs> I always look for the best in the people that I speak with at all times. It's tough titties for Walter Mitty's if tough you really fuck, <laughs> fuck up on this podcast. Uh, oh yeah, sorry, uh, Casey. We just got to put some uh, Vicks vapor rub under our noses. <laughs> just get into it, you know. What does that get down do? To business. What that, how does that help? That's what people do when they dissect corpses or deal with people oh. covered in shit. Okay, it wakes you up. You know what else wakes you up? Drugs, cocaine. Mm, I didn't <laughs> want to say it. I want to be PC. PC. <laughs> <laughs> God. So um, wholesome. Should we? What have we told was, our names? To that's brag, Matt and that's <laughs> Paul and I'm Gabe. I'm Paul. And we said Casey, so that's good. Yeah. But say it, your name and your voice. I am Casey, the guest. Nice. Right. <laughs> you have to talk like that every time you talk. Yeah. Uh. The guest approaches the bench. Uh. <laughs> the guest is speaking. Yes. The guest is speaking. <laughs> please, uh, by the way, please raise your hand whenever you need to talk in here, Casey. Yep. You have yeah. to raise yeah. your hand. We mm-hmm. yeah. polite here. Yep. No talking over each other. This is one of the longest books I've read in recent memory. I'm, uh, I was really trying to think. I may have read, like, I don't know, something <coughs> that was longer. I've read longer books. So oh, cool, cool, cool. cool. <laughs> I mean, like, thousand pages. Yeah, know, dude. Whatever. Like, Moby, Moby Penis. <laughs> How long is Moby Dick, actually? That's like 800 or something, right? That's less than 1,000. No, I mean, I think it's... I don't, or is uh, it yeah, less than that, even? I don't know. Let's guess. I five, think it's comparable. Uh, 584. To this. 584, that's it? I'm going to oh. guess. Oh, okay. I thought you looked it up it. already. We're just going to do quantitative. All right. This, this, is, is, this funnest, is a statistics this is podcast. <laughs> Remember, there's font and margins. Oh, it's 300 and... Se- oh, I'm getting different. That can't be right. I'm getting much different counts. One says 378. One says 504. One says 752. Incorrect. Well, okay, so either slightly less or comparable. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, either way, well, and that's I apologize not the measure, for making you read it. I'm sorry. That's not so the measure big. of the quality of a book. Don't right? tell that to fucking BookTube. Don't tell that to. Don't tell that to any book reviewer on BookTube. Yeah. I or think Twitter. The key is all you weird book length fetishists out there who are like hefting the book in your uh, 
in your, you know, uh, thumbnails and going like, whoo, boy. Thick. Book equals long equals good. Many pages. Uh, you know. It's so dumb dumb. It's such a dumb dumb thing. I hate it. Yes. Um, that's yeah. maybe, that's probably a conversation for another day, but. I, but it does. It has to dovetail with this conversation because this book is so long. But mm. it doesn't have that. It, people don't treat it the same way as they treat some of these other chonk fat boys. Well, that, I think that's the special power of Murakami. Yeah. I I, I don't know. Uh, like um, his thing. Every book that I've read, and Casey, as the expert, you need to corroborate <laughs> my claims. Not the expert. At, at every point. I'm sorry, man, but that's... You've read all of his books, right? All thousand yeah. of them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, today I read them all, just to brush out. Ka- Casey's... Wow, Casey's reader over here. For all the on-cinema fans out there, Casey this evening is the real Mr. Murakami. <laughs> no, uh, is, I, think it was, I think it was last year I was talking with Paul, and I was looking for some book reads, and he recommended Murakami. Mm. And then I yes. just uh, read three quick in a row and fell in love from there. Was that before we started the podcast that I had you, I, I recommended that book? Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember. Well, I think it was around this time last year. I don't so, know. If yeah. we, I, don't, I don't know when you started, but yeah, I don't know if we've said it, but we are about to discuss killing commendatory. Uh, it's by in the title. Haruki Murakami. Um, Facts. Now this was Paul's choice. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if you, Casey. We we just sort of have the the chooser run through any sort of rationale or whatever. You you know the drill probably. Um, so Paul, if you want to just give your quick rundown of like why you chose it, what you thought in your choosing, what you think about Murakami, mm. all that. Why th- why that booty so thick? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> why this book of fucking? He's a beautiful Paul. man. He's got a good booty. <laughs> He has no booty, dude. Have you seen those running That's pictures? True. Come on. I mean, I haven't seen him nude. It could be really great without the shorts on. <laughs> no, you no can way. picture. You it. can't hide a you can't hide a fat booty in running shorts, dude. Yeah. Well, that picture was also taken like twenty five years ago. No. It could be big now. You don't. I mean, you're freaking. The, also, can, your booty doesn't that. get fatter as you get as you go from like fifty to seventy. That's not happening. Yeah, you you turn you just go Hank Hill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, fat. Everyone's different. No, Butts are no, subjective. Not, like not that different. <laughs> okay. Mer- <laughs> Final word, Murakami has no ass. <laughs> and there's the highlight clip. A thousand points is. of lights, stay the course, Paul. What did you what do you what is your choice and why? So even after what we just talked about, we are actually smart people, so just disregard <laughs> the last two minutes. Um well I picked it just because I really I, I read it last year, you know, I think it was probably a year ago, around a year ago this time last year. And I just really, really loved it. It was I guess it was only my second Murakami book that I've read. And yeah, I just I I had I was in kind of a similar experience um as the main character in the novel. I was kind of isolated in a new house and going through kind of similar personal things. So there's a there's a huge personal stake I have with this book that greatly influences my love of it. I think it's one of these books that I'll probably just pick up here and there over the course of my life because it just like calms me down in a weird way. So but did, I, I wait, did you? Say, I'm sorry. Did you say that you've already read this book, right? Yes, but oh. I read it again. Yeah, no, I know. I just wasn't sure if you specified that you had read it previously. Are you being facetious or? No. 
Oh, okay. No. Yeah, I read it. <laughs> I read it like last year. I thought I said that. Anyway. Um, so, I mean, th- it's a long book, so I don't want to go through like every single plot point. Um, yeah, let's that not do take that. Forever. But the general gist is that there's uh, the narrator is like a 36-year-old guy who recently um, gets separated from his wife. She basically says that there's another man. Um, he's, a, he's a portrait painter. And he kind of takes off uh, on a road trip, sleeping in a tent and stuff. And then he eventually ends up at his friend's father's house because um, the house needs like taken care of, needs a kind of a caretaker. So it's kind of a perfect situation for him. Um, the his friend was his what's his friend's name Masahiko, and uh, his dad is uh, Tomohiko Amada, who's a, fa- a fictional, very famous traditional Japanese style painter. He didn't really start out as traditional though, which is no, which, well, become, yeah. which I think is important. It is important, but I'm just trying to okay. I'm sorry. I'll show plow I'll through show this because it's a long okay. plot. Love you. Um, Backseat summarizing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically the narrator who is unnamed um he's living in the house and finds a painting in the attic that's covered up by a sheet or something and he finds the title is of the painting is Killing Commendatory. And he's really fascinated by this painting. Um he just kind of like stares at it and loves it and is like learning a lot from it and he's also going on like an artistic journey of his own because he doesn't want to do portrait painting anymore. He wants to kind of get back to its roots or something or just change things up. Like, I'm already going too long on this freaking plot summary. Um, so, yeah, basically, weird stuff starts to happen uh, at the house. He starts hearing a bell ringing outside every day at, like, 3 in the morning, every night. Um, that bell... Uh, okay, so what happens? Basically, he meets a neighbor um, named Manchiki, who is a a uh, millionaire bachelor type dude who basically, takes a liking basically to me him. in books. Yeah, in it's book. an alternate version, alternate reality <laughs> version of Gabe, <laughs> for sure. Um, I connected and, a lot with him. <laughs> Feel free to speed me up because I'm only like uh, what, like a fifth of the way through the book. So I, I, I think you're fine, man. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. Okay. Because I, I know people I, don't I, want I, us to just explain the book. Yeah. Which is I think weird stuff happens is a good is a good uh, way to because we'll we'll talk about all the weird stuff probably eventually. Yeah. But basically, okay. So basically, he, him and his neighbor friend Menchiki, who's very curious and weird and eccentric, but like quiet and nice. I really like him. Um, he pushes them to try to find the bell, which they think is buried in this like, in this. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if it was a, a well or a pit. I mean, it is a pit, but it becomes a pit because they dig it up. Um, but anyway, they find the bell. Um, and then the narrator starts seeing the little commendatory man <laughs> in real life. This is one of the weird things that starts happening. So the in the painting, um, there's a little commendatory guy with a little sword. And he just pops up one day and starts talking to him. Um, and he says that he has an idea, which is this whole kind of inner philosophical kind of jargony type stuff that I don't totally get within the novel, but it's, it's interesting. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Um, and I think the, the major subplot is, uh, 
Menchiki basically trying to, or he explains to the narrator that he bought this mansion um, and retired or whatever solely because he believes that across the valley or whatever, which is also the narrator's neighbor, is someone who he believes is potentially his daughter. So he, uh, she's a 13-year-old girl named Maria, or Maria, I don't know how to pronounce it. But um, so he basically yeah. just want, has this like weird scheme plot to get closer to this little girl, but not even like reveal that he thinks he could be his father or her father, or he never wants a, uh, a biological whatever, a genetics test. He just, he's a weird guy. It's a weird thing that we can talk about. I think um, I think you're right in in it it just does kind of dissipate towards the end anyway so like a plot summary isn't even necessarily by the own like themes of the book yeah. I would say matter or yeah, that's I mean, not I what's emphasized just want to stop Yeah you know like the, they they find the bell and there's like the the uncovery of the painting and and that that's where like I would say like the narrative really kicks off, but then, yeah, you've just got, you've got more, the meat of the thing is, is all of these dis weird, like you said, kind of semi-confusing discussions about what an idea and a metaphor and a concept is and the underworld and uh, how things like loop into each other. And yeah. um, I don't know, it, I, I thought it was pretty interesting because it it definitely feels like some sort of statement on uh, Murakami's own creative process, you know, not to always loop the author into everything, but like um, I would say, this one feels pretty clear that he was, yeah, at least partially what, talking about himself. I don't know. Did I, Gabe? I don't. I didn't look, click this link you sent, but I, you know, it's interesting because like whatever the channel Leaf by Leaf dropped a, a Murakami video today. Shoutouts. Shoutouts to Chris Via. Um, Come on the show. <laughs> but um you know it, it was serendipitous or whatever but um he re he he, he kind of talked about some of the stuff that was released in a 2019 new yorker article which by the way leaf by leaf listen man i don't have a subscription to legacy media okay I, I, <laughs> <laughs> what do you I think did, rich could, yeah what do you think people are rich i can't get past i mean the i am manchiki but you are yeah. manchiki millionaire he's manchiki he's a hot millionaire uh <laughs> every uh every news jaguar right now <laughs> oh yeah yeah i'm actually recording this podcast driving 98 down the freeway in my jag <laughs> that's how smooth how the ride is you can't hear it <laughs> is that a million dollars flat <laughs> million, yeah. yeah one million dollars and every time I fill up on pack. every time I fill up on gas, it's one million dollars. One million dollars. <laughs> pack of gum. <laughs> I love the idea of never filling up your car. You just say, "Put it on my tab." <laughs> I like the and idea of carrying around runs. like million dollar gold bars and just throwing them at like the gas tank. Yeah, oh, here you go. But uh, I, I liked you know there were some things brought up that I kind of agreed with, with leaf by leaf. Or not agreed with, but just sort of didn't know. And then he brought up weirdly right as we were about to record today. Um, I should have I should have watched it. Where he was describing his writing process. This I mean this was a again this was an interview from 2019. It's just in a paywall, so you can't. But like describing how he just starts with a concept and some sentences and an idea, and he. He literally, from that, elaborates 
on his own. You know, like it's a very in- seems like a very intuitive kind of vibes. It's vibes. It's just very not um, plotted out. Well, it reminds which me which I think of, you can uh, also feel in this book. Honestly, it reminds but. me of George R. R. Martin talking about how he writes, uh, which I think he described it really well in a few interviews. He, he describes it as like gardening, like he, he has like an idea and he plants stuff and he, he has an idea of how the garden's going to go or whatever. But no one can actually totally predict how things are going to exactly grow. So it's like an organic thing um, that happens. And I get I didn't watch the Leaf by Leaf video, but I definitely see Murakami is that type of writer, someone who like plants ideas and lets them grow and doesn't even like necessarily care where they go. Casey, you again having read the most Murakami books here, does that sound like a fair description to you of like the his like overall approach or like what's your I don't know? Do you have a view on that? I mean, I haven't yet watched this Leaf by Leaf thing, but. I don't know off off the top of my head or off the bat. I wouldn't I wouldn't say like I I think he started with some kind of random thoughts and ideas and see where they went. Um, but I guess thinking about it more, I mean potentially. I mean this book kind of goes in like it feels like it goes in a million different directions. Like so many different little stories are tied in and and whatnot. But again. Like there's a million different like pieces to dissect in this one. So did he? Did he? Perhaps um, he is, did. Is this the most recent book he's published? What's is it, or no, is it he, he just one? released one like a couple weeks ago? I think actually, or like a month ago. Yeah, but I think that was stories. a collection of short stories, right, right, right. But men without I, women, we just we we discovered was after. I think this, this one, is his has, most recent novel, right? He has very mm-hmm. similar themes in Men Without Women too, but like most of his books. Have that's that's themes. that's part of my question. I guess again, Casey, you're the expert. And you have to get comfortable. <laughs> Matt, you're uh, the expert. CFA.expert. So, uh, listen, guys, I'm the expert, and I'm actually the millionaire here. So I'm the expert. No, I'm the expert. Mike one million dollars. No, I'm the expert. No, I'm the expert. No, I'm the expert. Trying to ask Casey a nice question about how does this feel in comparison to the other stuff you've read, having read, you know, the most widely. N- not, not, you know, this doesn't have to be some profound lit professor kind of answer but just like did this feel like the same <coughs> vibes as the previous books you'd read like are the same themes being broached um because that's what he gets hit with a lot in his yeah. critiques and and praise he's like i, w- I was going to mention that because if, it seems like a lot of his themes are are reused and there's this kind of kind of funny uh i think it was the new york times post that they just like there's this murakami like bingo card where I think oh, I've pulled I've it up before that. this, where like there are these like I don't know common themes that like he always brings up. Like I'm looking at it now: mysterious woman, ear fetish, dried up well, something vanishing, and so on. So it does seem like he he reuses um, certain themes, and I kind of saw it in this one too. Ear fetish. But <clears throat> I feel like I this one like the there's a lot fetish. of there's a lot of filler, and I feel like what really goes down like you have you have to wait till like the very end of the book last mm-hmm. like 200 pages or so until it feels like 
you know, something's, something's happening that you were kind of waiting for, in, in my opinion. I, I, I'll, I can jump in on that point because for me, one of the like themes so far in my reading of Murakami has been, um, you know, I came in for Norwegian Wood and then when Paul and I started reading these short stories that we've been doing on the YouTube channel and stuff, it's been, you know, his reputation is this like really weird magical realism, like crazy, like, oh my God, it's so fucking weird and shit. And Norwegian Wood is obviously not that, so I, that's fine. And I, I like Norwegian Wood quite a bit. We didn't do an episode on it, but we read it together. And um, I liked the short stories that, that were not. And, and so I was like, okay, this, we got fucking 700 fucking some odd pages. There has to be that part of that, his, his shit in here. And there is. But as you said, Casey, it doesn't really fucking happen until like page 500 or some shit. That's not true. And, yes, it does. Well, okay, the, okay, okay. The commendatory, the commendatory the shows up out of the pa- out of the painting and the bell. So there are these like small elements, I guess. And maybe maybe my expectations are just fucked for Murakami, and I expect it to be like way more over the top and wacky than any of it really is. But um, that to me felt like again more like a, a tease than what what I am expecting from my you know reputational understanding of Murakami's writer and then now it does hit eventually and it was satisfying but it took a while to get there see that's one thing I really like about the the subtle magical moments is that I like subtlety in most things I think like I I wouldn't like the the bell to actually like come out of the pit attached to like a a lizard monster that comes and fucks Manchiki in the ear or something I mean I mean well what do you say Well, I would read that. <laughs> well, well, well. Uh, I, I just, I really like the, the subtlety and the slow buildup, and I know you guys. I think you're probably all gonna agree a little bit that you think there's a lot of filler in this book. But I, I mean, I loved it. I don't know. I loved the the slow buildup, the kind of uh, mundane moments where he's just like talking about parboiling vegetables and drinking yeah. whiskey mm-hmm. and. I love all sauce, that stuff. Which is another yeah, like, bingo card thing. Right. I just, it, it, a, a big aspect of the book was just like, it was a very comforting read for me and just pleasant, but mixed in were these very real emotional elements and, you know, actual danger happens. And I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think this yeah. is an interesting question, right? Like, how do we, you know, how do we uh, parse, like, this is filler, this isn't filler, right? Like, how do we make that, so how do we draw that line? How do we say, like, this needed to be there, this didn't need to be there? You know, I, I mean, like, I'm not, me personally, in the way that I view literature and, and think about literature, I don't really, I don't like to go down that road too much. It feels very, like, Mahler and very, like, you yeah, know, I don't believe, like, like I don't editorial and stuff, and I don't, like, that's not how I like, prefer to think about these things. Um, but, you know, I guess the way that, it, that I can put it is that it felt like, I don't know if anyone else, I know, Paul, you know what I'm about to talk about, but, like, there's these videos on YouTube that are, like, 10-hour long, like, fucking bi- <laughs> binaural ASMR, like, low-tone, like, vibe videos that you put on when you go to sleep, and they, they're all in, like, the fucking, like, spaceship, poly- like, fucking engine room and shit. TNG. There are, there, like, you said, like you said, Paul, like, the book is, like, very soothing and kind of comforting or whatever, and, uh... 
that was the closest analog I could think of to like those moments. Like it's fucking these long, drawn out descriptions of like the weather and the valley and the traffic and this and that and like. Um, yeah, I mean, but like the. No, I'm not I'll, saying it's bad um, or doesn't need to be there. I think that's a separate yeah. sort of question. I don't know. The answer. I, I well, it, I think that the the plot kind of opens up so, really slow. If it it feels like the the Star Trek uh, TNG uh, ASMR video. ASMR <laughs> videos for sure. <laughs> and it, it also reminds me of like a like Star Trek's kind of like an RPG. Like how they deal with problems is like very RPG. So it's like two shit ships like facing each other. And they're like, barely moving, and it's like shoot, shoot the uh, proton torpedoes. Oh, their shields are down. Right, it's like um, shields are at this percentage of strong. Yeah, I love and I love it. I don't play RPGs, but Star Trek is an RPG show, and this book kind of felt like an RPG book. Like everything happens very slowly. Like something will happen, and like three weeks will go by until another plot point happens. Well, and like Casey um, said, there's a lot of up like at the end. kind of side quests and side narratives. Yeah, and things side that, like, quests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My chickens so, like, have all left the barn. You have to get all <laughs> ten of them yeah. to eat. Yeah. Shout out Ocarina of Time. Yeah. Yep. Um, that, it's funny because I, I, really I, like I was thinking of um, a RPG I played recently, honestly, which was uh, Persona 5. I was going to say, it's, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just because you know, again, like the, the 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 whole conceit around that RPG uh, is that people have uh, you know their their real world persona or their real world uh, whatever their 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 existence, and then th- their persona is like their mental reality, and those are the dungeons you explore in the game, like the, the which is I think a fucking sick concept. Like, you go, and, like, in that game, there's, like, a gym teacher, but, like, secretly he's, uh, he's kind of, like, sexually assaulting, uh, volleyball student, like, uh, girls in the high school team, and, like, thinks he's some sort of king, so, like, you go into his headspace, and then suddenly the, the school is transformed into, like, this big castle, and he's, like, a king in it, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I, I definitely got that notion, or that conceit as, as a big part of this. And I, I'm gonna push back a little too, too as well. I, I I don't mind languishing in things and like whatever, but I I do, you know, think that this book was over long, um, uh, for the ideas that Murakami I feel like was like kind of pushing forward. Uh, it's just it, it it's 730 pages and 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 i know i don't like to think in these like numerical terms but i i do kind of like have this kind of line where it's like after about 500 i'm really asking why there's more like i the burden of proof is on the author <laughs> in my opinion after a certain point it's like movies that are four hours long or whatever it's like i'm not against the concept but why you know just tell me why 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 would it, why does it need to be like this you know, please tell me why. Is that is that why am I is off my rocker so with that though, or yes, kind of. Um, someone else want to go? I mean, I, can... I don't know, Casey. Do you have thoughts about the length? He because has written a number of uh, long books, and this is the only yeah. one of them that I'm, I've read. Kind of like so. what what Paul said. Like, I don't I don't think anything. I mean, it is long, and there are some parts that probably don't need to be in there, but it doesn't necessarily mean I didn't like it. I didn't like reading about it. Um, I mean, 
I think Paul, I've heard you say before, like it's a meditative experience to read Murakami and I like reading like these little mundane details about him making a salad or whatever. So, <laughs> so whatnot. But I, I do think like Matt, what you were saying, like there are certain, I don't know, you know, sidebars Murakami puts in there where it's like, did we really need that? Like, sure, it might be good writing or just enjoyable to read, but I don't know if we really needed that as part of the story. Well, I, think I, I guess I just, uh, yeah. Ooh, wow. Ooh, a, a three-way. <laughs> well, who goes first? Mexican standoff. I think I've talked, I don't know. I think Paul's, I think I've talked more recently than Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Oh, okay. Um, I was going to say that I think one of the, the pros to having a longer book that deals, you know, solely with, character inter- interactions and character development is that you you can get the feel of a character more in-depthly by simply reading more about their experiences within the novel. Um, maybe that, you know, maybe the ideas of the book could have been told in a, in a speedier way. Like, I was even thinking that this same kind of story could have been 50 pages in Men Without Women because it has a very similar themes of that book. Um, but y- you would lack all the character development that you get from Minshiki, that you get from Marie. Um, and by the, you know, I, I feel like I know Menshiki um, in a way that I don't know other Murakami characters simply because there's more written about him. There's more um, plot points, more development. So... I mean, I, I, I like that, and I don't like it all the time, maybe, but, and maybe it doesn't jive with everybody to read that much about certain characters, but I enjoyed it in this book a lot. I, 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 have, I have two thoughts about this. One, sort of going off what Paul just said, is that, you know, I think that, right, if we're talking... So, so one of the things that sort of surprised me that I liked so much about this book. Sorry, my dogs are uh, fucking going nuts. <laughs> the, the dogs background. will be jangling, don't worry. Yeah. Dogs be jangling. Um, sounds like the bell from the pit. Is yeah, that, there, uh, you there you go. Dude, that, okay, that wow. was intentional. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> we all hear it. One thing that I'll say about this, you know, the, the, this book that I was sort of surprised by was I, I kind of thought that the best part of it, which was is not something that I hear talked about a lot in Murakami, was the characters. I thought the characterization... And the dialogue and uh, the way these various like personalities and like life, these lives are described was really sort of well done, you know. I, and that's not something that I sort of think or that's not built into my kind of con- conception of Murakami as a writer. I got all the weird magical realism and whatever and, you know, jazz and fucking whatever the fuck, whatever, right? right? And his like style. <laughs> But that that so that sort of surprised me, and I think that getting to Paul's point, like if you just think about real life, right? How is it that you get to know people? It's not like direct statements of here I am, here are some themes that I represent, and th- it's like it's in those moments when they fall asleep on your couch or when they, you know, show up uninvited and make a salad or whatever. And I think that's part of why these characters work so well is because you do get those kind of quotidian you know, not directly like I am characterizing this character moment that you get in a lot of other authors when they're doing character is the capital C characterization. Yes. Um, And so I I do think that there's some value to that. So that's, 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 that's point one. Point two is that 
my general discomfort with this conversation about like what needs to be there and what doesn't um i i just think that it's uh and i know this is a, a fucking cringe phrase but it does describe a real thing I, I think it's kind of a slippery slope like where do we where do we end this conversation like are, like and i also think it, it like are you are we are you gonna sit are you gonna sit there and stare me in the eye and tell me that every single fucking page in Moby Dick needs to be there. Every single page in, you know, uh, whatever fucking Ulysses needs to be there. Uh, what does that, and what does that even mean? What does it mean for it to need to be there in the first place? The fact of the matter is we're dealing with a work and it was put there. I don't, I don't even know what we mean when we say, did it need to be there or not? The fact is it is there and we, we should reckon with that fact. And I, I guess agree. it just becomes this kind of arbitrary thing where, uh, you know, are we parsing like word and line and did it like, it, it just feels like we're becoming, um, sort of not, not even ideal, but whatever, whatever the opposite of ideal is like the worst, like unideal editors. Um, and I just don't know if that's like helpful. And it, and it also just get, you know, like it, it plays into to me this narrative about these like big cla- you know these, your infinite jests or your pensions or whatever of the world where you have these cringe you know booktube people who are like every word is pregnant with meaning and it's every fucking <laughs> contraction is so bad. no it's not it's not it just isn't and pretending that it is is goofy and makes these artificial and in my opinion ultimately false distinctions and I don't like it. I I I feel differently. Uh, like, oh, here we go. Fight. <laughs> no, I I, I get I Zoom get fight. It it's not as uh, intense as any any uh, of you guys are off. making it out. Shirts off right now. I mean, right? Shit like Infinite Jest. The, Gabe has a really he has a cool tattoo across his entire abdomen. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like like even Infinite Jest, right? The joke long book had i don't know hundreds of pages edited out of it it was much longer um i think there is something to be said for authorial intention i i emphasize the author i think more so maybe than gabe or i don't know anyone else might do in their own internal accounting of like what is or is not important but like this book by yeah, I, I I feel like I'm in a difficult position, but like I think this book was a bit bloated, and it affected my enjoyment of it. I, I, yeah, I guess I just I, I guess I just need an answer to the question: bloated against what imagined ideal, and and why is that the ideal? Other than just what I mean, obviously we're talking about what we like, but I think these discourses get into this book would be objectively better if it were shorter and i just i just don't that just doesn't i don't, I don't think there's any like way to actually make that case yeah but, but 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 where do you move from there you know if you have what we're just pointing at each other because okay. we're on zoom is fun oh sorry if if <laughs> if you feel like a story didn't work right and partially that might be attributed to length or some sort of over you, you state something's overstated it's welcome or it feel like I, I I really doubt that any of us here have not at some point reading a book been like okay I get it or that's too long maybe that's subjective and, or, or, or something but like 
like there is an editorial importance that I think is also valid where an author can also go like, no, every word should be here. I I, I don't know how to like square the two, but (coughs) am I, am I insane? Like, like, you know, uh, I don't think you're insane. I mean, I, I I kept thinking about how much I like Blade Runner because I do it all the time. (laughs) You just bad mouthed it like a last episode. I think that did. I bad mouthed Blade (laughs) Runner. Yeah, you did. Yeah. What did I say? That you didn't like it as much because of what we had read. And oh, I was didn't probably like noir. Wow. Oh, I was. That's shocking. Off my rocker. Casey, are you? I a think Blade I Runner drink fan? too much. We I like it, but I'm not a. I'm not a huge fan. I was Paul's probably a little up. too drunk. I don't remember even saying that. So that <laughs> is. Um, it was like early on in the episode, I think. So maybe I do remember. But I mean, I I, I kept thinking about the scene in Blade Runner where Deckard is uh. He's looking at the photo in that like that uh, machine that kind of z- can zoom around on the photo and like yeah enhance you know enhance enhance yep. enhance, and that's like when people that don't like Blade Runner talk about Blade Runner they they point to that scene as being like why is this so long and boring? It's like ten minutes of him sitting on the couch drinking whiskey and zooming in on a photo to try and find <laughs> a tattoo of a freaking snake. And the people that like Blade Runner like me. They just subjectively enjoy it more, I think. It comes down to that. I mean, you can look at that as a plot point and and be like, this is just failure-based. This is just a waste of time for the overall story. Um, And yeah, maybe scenes like that in other movies, and this one in particular, can be seen as something that needed to be edited down. But you're watching a thing that was intentionally like set up like that, intentionally fitting a mood intentionally long and if you don't enjoy it i think it comes down to your subjective experience and that's where i kind of draw the line on this argument is that i i i see it as almost entirely subjective a lot of these are a lot of this argument here's my here's my thing and this is sort of a follow-up to that last point paul and uh, you know, maybe we should get back to talking about the actual book at some point. But yeah. I, I, I do think <laughs> it's gonna this, be a long episode. Yeah, it's be a long yeah, book. I think it probably is. I do Book's think long. this. I do, yeah, book, book long. Was too long. Long book, long episode. Well, but okay. But here's the thing. Chunk. Here's the thing, though. There's here's so many th- ideas. My brain chunk level is my, high. <laughs> chunk high. No, don't. My brain is on recovery mode for so many high level ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> um, but here's my thing with that. With 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 this whole argument about length and what needs to be there and what doesn't need to be there i my, my problem with it and you just helped me articulate this paul this is the first time that i'm like formulating it in this way is that it is something that people appeal to as a sort of pseudo objective measure to cover up other complaints that they're unable to articulate like like it, it you know because matt i know for a fact that you like songs that most people would say, that note was held too long. This fucking silence goes on for three minutes. Why? This fucking solo is too long. Sure, it, yeah. And and, pro- and and we could say, objectively, they are. But that feels meaningless. Because, th- that uh, uh, like, who's to say what is the objectively correct length for a guitar solo? What is the, uh, like, that's a stupid concept on the face of it. Um, from my point of view. Maybe you disagree with that. And so I guess my, my, my point is not, obviously it's subjective. Obviously everything we, anyone, everyone fucking says about, says about every book we've ever read on the show is subjective. But it, it is a 
subjective judgment that to me is used to obfuscate like discussion like this whole discussion about filler unnecessary whatever it just feels meh it falls flat for me i'm not trying to obfuscate discussion and and in fact i have complicated feelings about it because i i think a lot of people i i know that this book was not super popular amongst murakami fans Mm. and i get why that might be but i don't totally agree with the again conceptual not real people (laughs) theoretical people that i'm arguing against uh i have problems with comparing this to any other medium just because i think they operate on different logics or or, or, i i don't agree Mm. with that that feels like a cop-out too though why i agree with that because i think that i think that across all mediums there's a there's like a creative there's a created objective truth of structure that shouldn't be there in any art form that's that's what i think i don't think it should be there in movies i don't think it should be there in music i don't think it should be there in literature i I just think that like structure can be made up by the artists and i i think like like people that are very mauler about movies talk about like i don't know <laughs> i don't Shout outs to am mauler. i am i getting don't close come on to being mauler is that what you're saying no 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 i'm I, i'm not lumping you I'm in with that that's true i okay. i'm not at all no casey do you know you know mauler no there's no idea. way casey knows Mahler. <laughs> no one should you're better off yeah he, he's he he, he makes the, he makes these like ten hour videos like going through every fucking shot of every Star oh Wars God. movie and talking about how it sucks and there's plot holes. Yeah, don't know this person. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't know. I lost my train of thought, kind of, but I I just I don't really I don't think I believe in filler or plot holes for sure. I I, just, I don't know. I'm more on the side of uh, towards Gabe, I think, with with this. Uh, but I did lose my train of thought, so. I, I'm, I'm on the same I, page. Mm. Like I, like sure we're kind of hung up on like the the page count, but I mean just to reiterate, like there was no point in the book where I'm like, God, I just I just want this section to be over, or um, like no point where where I was speed reading through something because I'm like, oh this is this is stupid, this is dumb, I don't want to read this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed like each part I read and each side quest, if you will, so. Like sure, the seven hundred page count is is long, but I thought I thought it was a fun, good read. Just to put it simply, all I can say is that I I, I enjoyed the book. Basically, <laughs> I just have basically. like I just have like some qualms about it, and I think some shit dragged, and and I don't think it's crazy to critique that. No, it's not, no, no, no. Okay, the same way that I'm not saying that you're Mahler. I'm not also saying that it's crazy to bring up length. I don't, I don't think it is. Um, I, I guess I just think, and again, I may, be, I may be taking out some frustration on you that's not, that is not about you. <laughs> this may be about like some, some you know, larger scale conversations that I see going on in the like, I hate online Mahler, right? literary community and stuff like that. But, yeah. um, you know, it, like... <clears throat> It, it, it just feels that, you know, like, yeah, again, and this whole sort of question, like, right, because it seems like this kind of, tr- this, this whole discussion trades on this idea that if this book were shorter, I would, you know, could we have enjoyed it the same or even more? I mean, I don't, I don't fucking know. 
That's like that 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 right. seems to me both an impossible to answer and pointless hypothetical question. Um you just can't there's no conceivable way to know the answer to that question. Uh at this point, right? We've read it. You know, could could the four of us get together and chop out 300 pages of this book and give it to someone who's never read it and see if they like it? Yeah, we could do that, but that wouldn't tell us if we would have liked it. Like that's an, that's impo- it's just impossible, and and to me, it's sort of a fundamentally goofy question. And it also just I feel like it trades on this weird sort of view of literature that like, or this view of engagement with books or media or whatever that like, time, um, you know, time spent with a work of art needs to be efficient and for a purpose and whatever and i know you don't feel that way matt which is why i'm a little bit surprised like uh, uh, at this sort of you know view it's just more like time is not um infinite i think that's something to be reckoned with in in these kind of things i i I think about movies that are longer than two hours and there's a lot of critiques about a bellatar movie or something right and it's like, you know, people are like, why why is that the case? Like, wh- what is who is this snob who thinks that they deserve to in, uh, engage with this much of my time in this medium, right? Because we... But I also have, obviously, like, re- a rejection of the just the hard rule of any sort, that there's, like, a two-hour m- max for a film. Like, right. that's not true either. It's just more like... That attitude yeah. just also feels weird to me because this isn't like you we I mean obviously you in this specific case were forced to read the book for the show but <laughs> but forced against I don't your feel will. like I was forced but, that's no, not I know, true. I know, no I know yeah. no I know no but I mean you you know what I mean but like in general no one forces someone to sit through a 6 hour bellatar movie no one no. forces someone to read this whole book cover to cover that's a choice that you you can make and if you pick it up and you you can put it down at any point it, it's it, it's sort of I don't know I don't know I just I, I I just sort of don't get it. Well, the complicating factor I would say about this book, and about I think Murakami in general is uh, something that's described as a frustration that I don't that I actually like, which is um, you know like there's um, there's th- th- it's not a Swiss Swiss washed book like it's not like a, a construction that is so mm. like I've watched movies like this a lot of like hoary kind of fucking like glossy um holly like you know high production value hollywood films you can get into like a screenwriter like you can you can tell when a payoff is happening you know when like uh the screenwriting is there to to create like this quote-unquote piece of entertainment you know um and and therefore it sucks and is predictable and that's like the genre thing and that's something i think murakami is very much like fighting against where he's more intuitive and instinctive but there's also i think the stated goal of murakami himself of of representing complex notions in a simple way and this is something i cribbed from leaf by leaf but like you know uh where he's like i want to write about things that are profound and complex but i also want to create entertainment um and that's something i think people when they describe him the him as comforting or uh hypnotic or mesmerizing or whatever uh i think that's what they're referring to and i think that's why he's so fucking popular and why so many very disparate people and i think this is a huge strength of him as a writer read him like people that would hate each other 
<laughs> you know what I mean? People that artistically <laughs> and in their taste preferences would be like, fuck you, that person's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Like, all kind of, like, do get a little bit gummed up together in their mm. like of Murakami. I think that's a huge fucking strength, and I think not many people, not many living authors especially, have, have been able to do anything close to that. And I think Murakami is, like, essentially one of the greatest living writers that we have. Um, I just think... I just think he fell short with this one. <laughs> I, I, I hope that makes it a little bit more complicated. No, definitely. So, so maybe let's talk about like what did we get in terms of you mentioned those this idea of sort of writing writing simply, which I think he does do right. It, 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 you know, if it, even if it is sort of repetitious or maybe whatever overly descriptive in some places <clears throat> about complicated things, what do we think he's writing about here? Like, what are the what are the complicated things that he's trying to address? What are the themes? What are the you know, uh, uh, like what, what, what jumps out to you guys as what he's trying to approach? My, my, uh, the biggest theme that I think of when I read this book, cause I read it twice now, <laughs> um, is like, is re it's about reduction. I think it's about the reduction of yourself and it's about isolation and, pe um, people putting themselves in an isolated state. Um, <laughs> You know the main the narrator is isolated in this house. Mm -hmm. um, Manchiki was in, incarcerated for like a year and <coughs> a month. Yeah, and he talks about his isolation there. He also has a fascination with the pit, and at one point goes down into the pit and like Martha tells Stewart uh, insider trading. Yeah, dude. <laughs> um, and I also think there the the this you know the passages about the commendatory being a metaphor or an idea um and then when they finally go into the the underworld that is all a complete reduction of your senses of your environment um at one point when when they're in the upside down there's a beautiful <laughs> there's a beautiful Don't sue us, part stranger things. where um he looks out and he sees a forest of trees but there he describes them as being like completely still still there's no there's almost no air um, they're not moving. There's no birds. He can't hear anything. Um, so even though I think that this is a main theme in the book, I still don't. I still don't know, in, in totally how I feel about that. Other mm -hmm. than that, I think it is a, a something that Murakami was trying to explore. Um, he wanted to explore isolation, reduction, and kind of he just wanted to like get to the core in a strange way of a lot of different things. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. What do, what do you guys think? I agree. I was going to say it's like, it's definitely about solitude with mm. the protagonist and Menchiki, both in their respective homes, basically living a kind of simple, somewhat simple, um, lifestyle and I mean we kind of we get this with the writing where we'll have like a whole chapter dedicated to the, the main characters like just day where he like sits on the couch and just listens to a record and then makes He's a like, meal so whiskey. we definitely get like I need more the, the solitude vibes and like what what's going on in their, their day to day and how they escape from their their troubles or um, or whatnot, but that's kind of what stood out to me. 
We probably should yeah. say, because I don't know if we said this in the like plot summary that the, Paul mentioned the upside down, but like we, you know, basically Marie, the young girl who Menchiki thinks might be his daughter, goes missing, and um, the narrator goes to visit Tomohiko Amada, the artist who used to live in the house in the hospital with his friend or and and Amada's son, and then like gets these this other character from the painting emerges and he like goes down this hole into this like alternative world right and he has to sort of go through some some trials and tribulations uh and then um, comes out on the other end un unknowingly at the time but having like sort of sa it's unclear what the connection is but maybe saved marie from something yeah uh and just uh i wanted to say one more thing like um I think the point of the reduction is because I think there's a big um, uh, I can't think of the word. I'm sorry, but there's a big thing about um, him being in this emotional state because his his wife left him, mm -hmm. and um, these very strange events and seeing shit that he can't even believe is there happens when he's in this emotional state, and I think that that is part of what Mirakami is trying to tackle with too i think he's he's interested in the idea of like uh when you're when you are guilt stricken or just because he's guilt stricken too because of the guy with the subaru that's like a huge other subplot but he, i think he he's fascinated with the idea that when you're in a depression or emotional state potentially your reality can shift and he's doing that with magical realism obviously but like I said, I have a big con a personal connection with this book, and I felt like all of last year my reality was shifted. I didn't even know. Um, so I think that that's what he's trying to come away with uh, also. Which is narrative, right? Like, I, I forget yeah. what he says exactly about, like, marriage and then divorce, but it's something about how you think you're walking along a path, and then it just kind of disappears yeah like in alice in wonderland when there's that uh dog with a broom for a tail that's just brushing yes. away the path she was walking on and like I, I so yeah i i, I agree that the, that's like a huge part of the theme and, and that's what makes it so difficult to assess this book and even the stuff i had been so adamant about like you know length and narrative eff efficacy and and what could hit harder were it you know tightened up or whatever is is that this book's themes do feel very much uh like narrative uh disappointment is almost part of it mm -hmm. <laughs> in the same way that like you know uh uh it, it doesn't my point i guess is that that doesn't necessarily yield particularly ple pleasurable art in the same way that there's like uh, uh, Godard doing like anti movies that were like intentionally unpleasant to prove how much, or or, or um, Haneke or like uh, uh, even David Foster Wallace, who we had mentioned before, like doing a book about boredom that he killed himself before finishing that was supposed to be boring but in an interesting way. It's just like an, a, a task that feels ambitious but somewhat impossible to not be exactly what it is trying to avoid mm -hmm. you know does that make sense i think so what was he what do you think he was trying to avoid are you saying murakami was trying to avoid that 
just like he's he's reifying ideas as these things that can exist uh, and then there's this nether realm which he's referenced for like the entirety of his career however right like and, and this feels very self-aware because like he's been critiqued of this uh, also forever right like um, lines of inquiry just being dropped mm-hmm. and people just bringing up ideas and those those ideas don't have a payoff and whatever and like he's uh, it, so it just feels like he's almost toying or, or playing and, and mocking the people who would say that these things were a problem. I mean, by I making mean, that's an part entire of the book. Why I like it. The whole that's fucking part of the book why doesn't like have it. a payoff. Yes, that, and I'm saying that's kind of a cool thing, which yeah. is why I, I didn't just hate the book. I still think it's oh. too long. <laughs> I just the don't H think. Word. I just don't think it's. It, it, you know, I'm projecting a 2.5 for Matt. Whoa! Spoilers. Whoa! Chill. But I mean, I do you, think you you're right. The H word. I, I do think you're right in the sense that, like, you know, part of the point, like, the whole book in some ways doesn't have a payoff. We never find out, like, like all of the, you know, if you're thinking traditionally in terms of like literary analysis and narrative and whatever, the animating things that like get the fucking story going. What is the point of the pit? We don't know. Is Marie Manchiki's daughter? We never find out. Is, um, you know, the uh, uh, like. I mean, I guess uh, the narrator and his wife ultimately get get back together. But is it um, their child? Is it their child, right? She's yeah. pregnant, and he might have raped her in a dream. That it, it basically... <laughs> and she um, might know it, too. She might and know she sort of has an idea. Yeah. yeah Spoiler maybe alert. that's the reason why she broke up with him to begin with. For yeah. all you real um, uh, Spinecrackers Instagram meme heads, my meme for this book is going to be about Anna Nicole Smith. I'm not going to say anything more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Already promising. Wow. Uh, she A N S. Well, I won't say anything more. Yeah. She claimed that, that she had sex with a ghost. Say no more. Say no more. <laughs> wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Say no more. Yeah, exactly. So that reminds me of that scene in Ghostbusters um, when they where get a Ray ghost comes. Job. Yeah. 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 Which is Ghostbusters is an objectively amazing movie because it has a great structure. Stop. Well, everyone knows that was stop the first that. you stop instance that right of ghost busting. Well, okay, I kind of wanted to talk. I have a few other, like, things that I, that I think are worth talking about. About Oh, that was funny, Matt. That took me a second. <laughs> that was it's, a, it's not even my joke, so um, it's all right. Uh, what did you guys make of the, that section that Paul referenced where he's in the, the upside down, essentially? Like, because, I, I, okay, for me, like, that to me was what I want for Murakami. It's like, it's like, what, 50 pages out of 700 or something like that? Yeah. Um, but that's, like, kind of what I wanted. I wanted that, you know, he's in this weird underground world and there's like this faceless ferryman who uh, actually is one of the first people you meet in the book because the prologue is, the prologue actually takes place after the entire narrative of the story and this guy, this entity, this like faceless ferryman comes back and like demands that he paints a portrait of him in order to get back this trinket uh, that he left with him as as payment to get across this underground ri- this whatever upside down another, river another unknown yeah right exactly um uh anyway so so yeah i don't know I, like okay i don't know if you guys have ever read the phantom Tollbooth, but that was oh, one yeah. of my favorite fucking books as a kid and yeah. this oh, section I was totally thinking about that yeah this fucking section gave me phantom Tollbooth vibes like so hard what a scary yes. book for a child dude it's terrifying <laughs> yeah dude but this yeah. is like this is. Did you not feel like that, Matt, about this section? It made me. It reminded me of the Phantom Tollbooth so much. It was, was adult thinking, Phantom Tollbooth. 
I, I was thinking more uh, Alice in Wonderland a bit, um, which but that book also fucked me up. Like I also didn't like that as a child. Like, yeah. it, it, <laughs> like I, I always joke to my parents like it, you know. You, you, you tried to not let me watch, like, rated R movies and all this stuff when I was a little kid, but, like, some of the most profoundly disturbing shit were, like... <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, things like uh, Phantom Tollbooth and Alice in Wonderland. I, w- I was so afraid. Willow. Willow was big for me. Willow. Willow, when they turned into pigs, yeah. fucking killed me. My, I had to make my mom... I made my mom make up a story about a hero pig that flied, <laughs> flew, because of that so fucking movie. <laughs> So that were you to turn into a pig, it wouldn't be that big a deal? No, just so I could, like, think of pigs differently and like them again. <laughs> That's funny. So what? what is this, what, like, what is the significance of this world that he enters? He mm. he meets, you know, this faceless ferryman. He meets um, another character from the painting, eventually. The uh, older long, woman, long face. Yeah, long face. <laughs> well, long and face. like Sarah Anna or whatever. Eggplant head. Eggplant head. <laughs> Eggplant emoji head. No, no face. It, yeah, I think that's how Murakami describes him as an eggplant. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So egg, eggplant. eggplant emoji. An eggplant head. emoji headed man um, came up to me in the water. He. I mean, I thought that scene where he's alone in like. So, like, maybe one of the pivotal scenes in the book is when the narrator is alone in Tomohiko Tomohiko Amada's, um, like, essentially, it's not a hospital, but it's kind of like a retirement, whatever. Upscale, yeah, upscale hospice care. Yeah, 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 exactly. And he's alone with He's a millionaire, so it costs him a million dollars for that (laughs) day. That's right, yeah. Every night. And every time he gets every time he gets room service, it's a million dollars. Million dollar tip. <laughs> With a million dollar I'm, tip. Yeah. <laughs> it's just how it works. And so he's in this room and the commendatory shows up and is like, Hey, if you want to save your friend, the Marie, uh, you you have to kill me. And then he does, and then this other character from the painting shows up and lets him into the the upside down what we're calling the upside down um (laughs) i i love that scene and i just i sort of wonder what y'all made of that whole section of the book like where where that actually goes down well that the climax of that scene in the pit or in in the netherworld upside down is he i was trying to find it but he he finally has this moment where he like basically admits to himself like i am hurt because of what my my wife left me it reminds me of that uh twitter where the guy just tweets my wife left me over and over again but i think that was the point of 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 it and i think it it relates to what i was saying earlier is that like um the mg or the mr the magical realism is there uh to pronounce the emotional state of murakami's characters and i think that this netherworld region where everything is simplified and it's getting down to the core it's getting down to the core of his trauma from it what, what, that he had with his sister and his confusion about like why he loves his wife because his wife reminds him of his sister and all this shit um i feel like that was the point of of it narratively yeah i'd say that's right i i i think that like yeah all these kind of Misconnections and attempts at connection are are 
are definitely like the actual content or, or the actual like subject that he seems to care about elaborating through again in this book overtly like metaphor and concepts and ideas like these things these are characters like concepts and ideas are characters in the book like i feel like he's just he's a little bit mask off in this like he he's just kind of like <laughs> here's 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 what i give a fuck about right it's hard to like maintain human relationships it's confusing but here's also why I think they fail. <laughs> right. and here's how writing works and my, how that writing is me tackling this. And like, I, it, it just all feels very, it, I, I could get the, I, I could see where someone might think this is like the opposite of confessional, but this feels pretty, mm. this feels almost on the nose in a sense. Yeah. See, I, I agree. Casey, what did you ways? think of the under, well, okay, I was going to, I want no, to finish Casey. the discussion of the under. I was going to say, like, just to build on what you guys were talking about, like, the main character feels, to me, like, numb to, like, the emotional pain of his wife just leaving him up until, like, that pit, I mean, not the pit moment, I mean, the, uh, you know, the going pitful, into the, the underworld, scene. and, like, perhaps, like, the, the commendator is, like, you know, a filler, for his emotional like loss, and and yeah, like Paul, like he said, um, like he finally does realize when he's like in that underground that like he's he's hurting, like like that event was a, a major um, you know impact on his life and whatnot. Um, I wanted more of that underground. Same. See for me, I, it whatever, was, it was, whatever we're calling it. Well, wait, wait, it wait. Why did you? What, no, I totally disagree. Why did you want more, Casey? Because I agree, and I want to hear from why people who agree with me on this show. <laughs> I feel like it came in, like that scene leading up to when he enters. I, I love that when he comes in, and like Tomohiko Mata's, like his eyes are like straining, like looking at right. um, the main character, like you know, realizing what he's going through and, like, seeing the same things. I felt like that was, like, really, like, good good writing and, like, good storytelling. But it, it came late in the story. And, like, that big dose of magical realism, like, came late. And, and like, I wanted more of it. It seemed like his, his journey to, like, rescue Marier in the underground was, like, it wasn't really, to, I don't know. It seemed like... She, well, she was like hiding somewhere else, really. Right. And then he just kind of, kind of hilarious. briefly journeys through this place, and then he's he's out in the pit. Which I is, think it's hilarious that uh, she, like, Marie was just hiding in uh, Manchiki's house for four days because she. What a weird fucking section. And yeah. it, I love it because, like, you, it, you get the feeling that what whatever he did in the pit did save her, mm-hmm. but there's no answers to whether or not they related at all because she kind of was just like, she tells the story of what happened and he was expecting her to say like, Oh yeah, I was in the other world too. I was like hiding in a tree and, um, you know, the penguin, whatever. And you, uh, you saved me and they let me go. But it's just like, no, I was <laughs> the hiding penguin. there. And I, I escaped and I escaped and I got, I went home and he was like, Oh, then what the fuck did I do? And I think that's totally intentional. I think it's intentionally, um, super confusing. ambiguous. It's it's totally because at one point at yeah. one point there's she's so so okay so like when Maria disappears we find out later after after the narrator exits the upside down 
that she was just hiding in Menchiki's house for the weekend, basically, because she realized that he was kind of a fucking weirdo and was like, like had some suspicions about his motivations. He want, he's like, at this point in the story, he's like dating her aunt that she lives with. Um, and but she's it's like, unclear whether, yeah, never mind. Keep going. And she's like, this guy's fucking weird. I want to figure out what his deal is. And she sneaks into his house and essentially gets trapped in there and has to like live in his like laundry room or his adjacent like unused uh, uh, maid room for like three days. And Again, it feels like an RPG moment where she's like, she was blocked, <laughs> and she has to, she has to like build up her skills to escape yeah, slowly. Snorlax is sleeping in the pathway, but it's super. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Yeah, you got to learn cut before you can get through. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, but Lapras used swim. Uh, but is it swim? What is it? What is the one? Yeah, sure. Yeah, swim, right? Yeah. If there's any Pokemon podcast out there, um, there are many. I know, I'm sure. But there's a moment where she's hiding. I mean, again, there's like so many. Like as as we've been saying, there's so many fucking weird branches and like rhizomatic. Like fucking <laughs> root root fucking uh, uh, clusters that are never fucking terminated in this book, you know she's hiding in what we think is Minshiki's ex-wife's closet, and there's this weird entity that comes in and is like about to find her. I also took it as an anticipatory room for her. Mm. Ooh, that's interesting. Because of she being the same. I mean, yeah, it. I, I thought it was unclear whether or not it was like some weird memento room or, or for his ex dead hornet stung wife or mm-hmm. if it was uh, <laughs> for her what he anticipated she would be like as a young woman true because he is kind of obsessed with her as potentially his daughter yes yes but but anyway yeah these two she her being locked in his house and the narrator being in the upside down correspond and it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if we're supposed... Because when she originally goes missing, I think we're supposed to think that she has disappeared, I think, as Casey said, into this sort of other realm. Because she's talked about throughout the whole book this secret passage in the hills that she has from the narrator's house to her house. And we never see what that is. We never re- like figure right. out what the secret <laughs> passage is. And um, we're sort of, I think, meant to assume that she falls into this other world, but it's she's not... But it's also connected. It's so fun. Again, it's this ambiguity and there's no answers. See, this is this is one of the things that I like about Murakami. And this is one thing I, I think he did so well in this book in particular out of like the others that I've read. Is I, I absolutely love the ambiguity. And I think it's, it's, it's totally intentional. And I think it pisses a lot of people off. But um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to struggle with the idea of him... You might just say, no, Paul, you're fucking wrong as shit. But is he kind <laughs> of a a postmodern writer? Because he's like, I lost my train of thought. But I, I just feel like he's trying to, he's trying to subvert your expectations. He's trying to intentionally cut away at threads that could form. Like, I feel like he could easily have... And maybe he'd have the same amount of success if he did this in his novels. But if he did make things pay off, um, he might potentially even have a bigger audience, maybe. I don't know. So I, I feel like it is very intentional for him to just, like... I don't know what a bigger audience please. would look like. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Fucking yeah, Nicholas but, Sparks or some shit. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> John Grisham. But, I mean, he would, be a, he would be a very different writer if he did allow 
his ideas to pay off and connect and you got answers. So I don't know. I, it's just one thing I really appreciate. I guess, I, I, again, I just want to push back gently on this discourse that like <laughs> having the nice, like fucking resolution, fucking, you know, you know, musical fucking resolution of a chord note in, in, I, 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 I want to resist equating that with, with paying off. Like there's no payoff if there's no resolution. I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, and I think that that's sort of part of what pisses people off about the ambiguity, like you're saying. And I just like, I don't know. I feel like it's problematic to, to well, say if there's no, if there's no concrete outcome or if all, every, you know, plot hole or narrative sort of, you know, storyline isn't tied up, then it, there's a problem. Gabe, I have a, I have a question. Cause I know you, are not a fan of David Lynch, really. I'm a fan of at all. I'm a, I'm a fan of exactly Eraserhead. He should have yes. retired after making that movie. Uh, and I I feel like you know I, I love him, and I think that um, some of the things operating here with Murakami are are similar, like dream logics and and things broached and unresolved for the just the the sake of of a person's subjective you know um um expression uh and that being something supremely unsatisfying and shitty for a lot of people who engage with their work uh but that also being why there's such a cult following um i don't know it just it i, I it feels vaguely like you're kind of defending some of the stuff that david lynch would also do but you don't like him and i'm curious why that would be well, I mean, th the first thing that I would say is that uh, you don't know what score I'm going to give this book yet, bitch. And B, <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> and, and, you know, B, like, I, yeah, I'm not, I just have not read enough Murakami to say I'm a Murakami fan or not. Um, but but, but your, your point's well taken. And I, I mean, I think the thing that I would say with respect to Lynch is that I, and, and probably Murakami too, if I engaged with enough of his like hardcore fans is that you know my problem is not with um you know ambiguity or dream you know any of that stuff that you mentioned dream logics whatever inherently it's right. it's um with the the people who exploit that quality in a work for dumb dumb ends to just say like oh it's this dumb dumb thing that i want it to be Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, you know, again, I'm not gonna, I'm not, you know, I think, uh, uh, my problem is in, if I'm being totally honest with myself, more with Lynchians than it is with Lynch. Um, and That's I think fair. that That's those, a lot the, of artists. those people are probably, you know, those people are much more insufferable than Murakami fans, which are much more diverse. And as we've already said. Okay, that that's kind of helpful. It's the best I got. I mean, I yeah. you know we can we we could do a, a special episode on Lynch, but it's just funny when we're talking about like for Murakami, like this book being uh an intentionally frustrating work, and then roping that in with our own interpretations of it, right? Because like I, think, I don't know if I would say it's intentionally frustrating. I I would say it's intem intentionally ambiguous. It's okay, intentionally yeah. open ended. But I think that's the that's the the, the, the leap that a lot of critics make that ambiguous and open-ended equates with frustrating. And I, that I think is a false equation. 
My bad. Well, I didn't actually, mean to, say it like that. to push back a little bit on that, I think that potentially because of all the criticisms that he's got about his work up until this point, I think it could have been more intentional in this particular novel. Um, I mean, I guess there's no way of knowing that because he's kind of written the same themes over and over again. But I don't know. I, I get the. I kind of think that he could be trolling his audience a little bit with this book. Some of the stuff with uh, just the 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 some of the stuff about just breast growth felt like a joke. <laughs> yeah, it felt like he was just joking. Like he was just like, "Oh, you guys think I'm sexist? I'm just gonna straight up just objectify <laughs> breasts for uh, this novel." What, what do we? Yeah, I think this is a conversation worth having. <laughs> maybe, well, I, maybe not for too I think long, that, but I think that Murakami's way of writing about sex is absolutely atrocious. I mean, it's not like bad writing, but it's like very non-sexy and difficult to read. And I actually listened to a bit of this book on audiobook. Oh god! And the guy, uh, it was. I, I stopped after a while because the guy had a great voice. He's obviously like a, to get that gig. Getting too he's horny. Be a good reader. It wasn't that he was too horny. He was too like. <laughs> he, he was to too stop. like yeah. asexual. Did, did, did Tom Horny read? That? Tom Horny. <laughs> it was Mark actually. It was Mark. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mark the Horny, horny brothers uh, are hard to yeah. Mark uh, Tom I mean, Horny did the audiobook for Evandara's Flea, which also yes. had some cringe sex scenes. Oh my god. But yeah, it's See, really non-sexy writing. I liked that. I like clinical. But I, I do know that uh, that's one thing that like Wright Murakami gets slammed with is is these sort of undeveloped female characters and like bizarre sexual uh, uh, pre- uh, preoccupations or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and maybe Marie that does talk over, about her boobs a lot. Uh, maybe I was over aware of the criticism to think that this was some sort of performatively like ironic. <laughs> thing where yeah Marie is fucking 13 it's funny that we you know we're talking about Lolita also uh, yes. but like you know just like especially towards the end he ramps it up uh, just the discussions of breast growth were oh, there's a lot of it she calls him like a year later to update him on her boobs yeah three years later <laughs> three years like, later yeah she's like they're actually uh, growing he's like we okay, here's 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 one thing that I'll just toss out there, and maybe this is going to be enough to get me canceled. But you know, we may I think in talking about Murakami, because he's so popular in the West. I mean, obviously he's popular in Japan too. But the age of consent in Japan is thirteen. Um, is it really? Yeah, it is. Oh, and I so did I not know like that. part of this. I'm tempted to just chalk up to like cultural differences. Um, but I don't know how much, and maybe that's it's still fucked up either way. I don't know. I mean, that matters. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, Gabe, we talked about this a while ago um, about Murakami's, like, he has a very comfortable notion, or he has a comfortable... Uh, sorry, I can't think of the word. Ability to, like, communicate his male gaze. Like, he, he's very, like, brazen in his ability and his, like, I don't know. He just, like, doesn't give a fuck. And it, it's very honest and true to, like, a modern old man now. He's old. But How old is I think he there's now? something. He's in his 70s. But I don't know. I, I, I did wonder how you guys felt about that. Like, 
he he's brazen. He he just like says kind of what people like men think about in their heads and he just writes it down in his novels. I'm not saying that I think about 13-year-old girls boobs at all. I'm just saying that like the way he talks I, about like depicting women and like when you first see a new woman in your life you can't kind of help but do that as a man and it's gross but like it's part of our culture or whatever and i think he's just like kind of honest in his writing about that and and it's like gross but it's like i don't know yeah i'm, I'm not sure how to, I, i'm not sure how to describe it, it I, I i get i get why Paul people are un, unhappy you know uh it's it's more and it's less and it's less like you know his occasionally unromantic even and just kind of like dispassionate appraisal of women it's more the consistency of it it's like uh, it's just more like okay why the fuck are you hung up why is this a theme every book and it's like this motherfucker's written a ton too so it's like i you know it that's where the problem comes in it's like okay this isn't some sort of like aesthetic you know, this isn't something like like for Nabokov, right? It's like there's taboos and disturbing elements of sexuality, but it's like they serve very specific aesthetic purposes. Well, I think that's a rabbit hole. I think that's a rabbit hole. It could be, but I mean, I, less so than than Murakami, who like that. It, that feels like a I don't know. It's not like Nabokov or any writer doesn't have these blind spots and sinkholes where they're just kind of like actual right like perverse pervy <laughs> personalities or sur- like problems personal problems come come out but to then have that be written out as consistently i think i, I think yeah. that's the problem again I, I i you know i haven't read a, as much of murakami as possible but like uh, I mean, it's a thing in... It's a thing. I think in all of his shit. Yeah, right? it comes up a lot. Would you say yeah. so, Casey? You've, as some of the, you've, again, read the most of his shit. Yeah, it's it's a theme. And, like, when you start reading it, it's like, okay. And then it's like, okay, maybe I want you to stop. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like some of the characters in his books, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's enough. That's enough, I think. Isn't there, in Kafka on the Shore, some, like, potential some weird shit in that book. incest rape? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sister. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sister. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it yeah it does it does start to it, it, yeah in one case right like okay Nabokov wrote Lolita okay uh, you can make the case for it or against it or whatever but when it's a consistent theme like that I think it's fair to at least ask like what what's going on here yeah are you but, saying you that Murakami is a pervert. I'm, well, I'm saying no, no, no. Well, yes, but I'm also saying that there's <laughs> lots of other authors that are perverts that don't write about it in every single fucking book the way he does. Right. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe there's some sort of like you said, nobility to just a guy being like, I'm a pervert constantly right. <laughs> in every book. Like maybe Good. there's some sort of like this guy's being at least honest with himself in some sense. But it's yeah. Gooner Murakami confirmed. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm a goomer, a gooner, and I just I don't. I've never really thought it was like that uh, off the wall, or I I, never, I don't know. I've never really had Look, a problem with. It. I've thought it was I, fucking weird in a lot of instances, but I'm, I've always just been like, I, I haven't thought that it was too much 
I mean, I don't want to overstate. Like, I don't have particularly strong feelings about it, yeah, personally. Yeah. Sex is a part of life. Very true. That is true. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and I think this book also, like, <laughs> it's like an overt theme. Like, I think, like, life replicating itself is is mm-hmm. is equated to uh, the continual generation of narratives uh, and, like, memory as well, um, yes. which is something that we've been encountering, like, a ton in most of the books we read. Uh as as part of the general like memory is like the equivalent of like genetic dna to what like memory being like the dna of a concept turning into an idea or something like that like yeah like i i think there's like those two things are are sort of married and then you get these like you know uh the narrator yeah like we've mentioned before like just he just he in a dream realm where he's potentially also now a, a denizen of the of the upside down He's like a succubus that like coons in his wife so much <laughs> that it like fills the whole room, and then he's like, "I think I've impregnated my wife." I think I fucked her in the like thought sphere. <laughs> like he's just like, and, and he might have, and like you know, and sh- and it, like Paul said, she might know about it. Like she might have, and she might have been waiting for that to uh, actually experienced it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that you know the book is so subjective, obviously, but I the after the second time reading it, I kind of tied those two moments together. That I think that that's why she, one of the main reasons why she wanted to break up with him is, is like, she knew he would she do She had that. this ghostly experience too, even though it was like from a different time, right? It wasn't. Does that happen after they broke up? Oh, did it? I'm yeah. a fucking, I'm a total noob loser. I'm going to, I'll mute myself for 10 minutes. <laughs> well, uh, the other thing read this book. Ball. Paul, yeah. is your controller even plugged in, dude? <laughs> no. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to ask you guys about in this kind of connection, because we're talking about like generativity and sort of gestation and, you know, like, like you know, uh, uh, creation and whatever. Obviously, that comes through in the book in terms of the various pregnancies. Then Shiki's interest in Marie as his potential daughter um, right. and, and all of that stuff. But then the other side of that coin or the parallel is artistic creation right artistic generativity artistic sort of you know pregnancy and whatever what did you make of the book from the perspective of and if i'm not mistaken the main sort of action of the book takes place over the course of about nine months um which of course is the the length of a pregnancy um is it yeah right (laughs) am i crazy casey you're the only one here with a kid I mean, you're, you're right. I didn't time out the the, the timeline of the book. So he says. I think he says it. I believe in terms he of says. Pregnancy, yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> I believe I he says. I'd want it in there for about a year. I believe he says. Casey's uh, a science. Casey's scientist and Murakami expert. And 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 amazing father. <laughs> Thank you, Gabe. I appreciate. And a that. handsome bearded man with gray hair. Mm-hmm. And we just, also got some facial hair going on. Right and now. basically, just a fucking unproblematic giga Chad. <laughs> You should call me Chad. Yeah, you're Chad, dude. Um, I don't think that's a compliment. It is a compliment. It totally Uh, is. Chad. It's it's ambiguous. So, but but anyway, I think he says somewhere in the prologue that he had lived in the house for a little over eight months or something. Whatever. It's like between eight and nine months. It's like roughly the length of a pregnancy. It's not not like like a huge deal, but it's something I picked up on. Um, 
So, so I, I guess the question I was trying to ask is, what do you all make of the book as a description of artistic uh, kind of kind of creation? Because I, I'll just put my cards on the table uh, because I have to go pee. But I know Gabe's answer. I was deeply dissatisfied with the, <laughs> with with it as a description or a way of like one of the things that I see a lot or I saw a lot in reading reviews or on Goodreads or whatever about the book was oh it's such a insightful amazing description of the process of the internal the internal life of the artist in creating art and I didn't get that really at all. To me, it sort that's, of felt that's like... That's because you can't it, even draw a stick figure, No, man. that's true. <laughs> that's true. Oh, my God. No. The only people who, here who have any artistic... Ta- well, I don't know about Casey. Are you? I don't have any. Okay, so Matt and Paul have some artistic talent. Me and Casey have none. Some? Are you... What? That really insults me. I'm an artist. Aww. The most. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You have the most. Well, that really light. hurt my feelings. Go, Pete. Shirts, shirts off. So... <laughs> So, but for me, it felt like really uh, uh, unsatisfying, and you mentioned reduction earlier, Paul, but problematically reductive. Basically, like the whole for me, the whole thing boiled down to, well, I don't really know. I get inspired when I'm inspired, and random shit happens, and when I feel like doing it, I do it, and like that just is, doesn't feel satisfying to me for for a 700 page description of the process of creating art. I'm well, going to agree you that. weren't satisfied. That sounds sarcastic. Do you, are you hey, actually hey, sarcastic? Now Gabe's going to go, go pee while we rebuttal. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep my volume up. My bathroom's right there. I'm going to listen. Oh, okay. Well, All right, we're going to hear him. Someone else. We're going to hear it. Yeah. You want me to go, go first? first? I'm muting yeah, it. Yeah, your rebuttal, dude. You're the most vocally opposed to what Gabe just said. Well, I mean... As an artist, Gabe, you know, kind of diminished my status a little bit. But um, I found, I mean, this is clearly my personal connection, one of the personal connections I have with this book. But I just found that his his um, depictions of how you go about making art, especially when, you know, the main character is having like a renaissance or, you know, he's rethinking what type of art he wants to do. Or, you know, he was a portrait artist, like a very... Um, almost mathematical portrait artist for years. That's how he made his money. And he, in the beginning of the book, he decides after his wife leaves him to just stop. He's like, he calls his agent and he throws his phone in the water. He's like, I'm not going to make any more portraits. So he's having this like, you know, he wants to change and maybe get back to his roots a little bit about how he creates works of art. And it it felt incredibly realistic to me. I mean, I... I, I totally got into his head and I knew what he was thinking. And um, you, I really do find find that like if you're make, trying to make something new, you are kind of throwing things out there and you have to sit on it and think about it. And you'll have like bursts of energy and you'll create something that you think is kind of good and you'll you'll look at it for a few more weeks. Like it, it felt totally realistic. I think Murakami got into the head of an artist very well. Um, even though this is not how he makes art at all, according to his memoir. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a very clear and realistic depiction of how someone can go about the creative process. So I totally disagree with Gabe. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I don't really know. I just want to, uh, flex and say that I think the, 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 the phrase, 
that I had tried to remember for some other book that I also can't remember was ekphrasis, which is um, the term for trying to verbally describe other works of art. I think sp- more specifically paintings uh, and visual art. Um, and we that, should have that, named our that is its own ekphrasis. That th- and and More that, like that sex is sex phrases. Nice, dude. But just that that that's its own almost realm of of debate amongst writers and 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 stuff is like how how to verbally depict the creative process for things that aren't writing. Um, well, and I I think it's possible, but it's just an interest. It's th- that's the term I heard. <laughs> good term good flex yeah thank you thanks guys i don't know anything about art or creation but i guess you made a, yeah. you made a human being casey paul i guess like yeah he does like think about it and like revisit his his works like of like the the man the white super forester and, and the pit um and he like puts them on the ground and like covers them up, especially the Mammaloid Super Forester, because that's like that's the theme of the book. Like when he's he made that painting, something we didn't touch upon yet, but he like he painted this this uh, this guy whom he um, encountered in the early stages of the book, who thought was judging him for a sexual sexual encounter he had with a kind of random woman. So. And he kind of thinks this this painting is you know, judging him and like telling him to not paint it. So, um, like that was a cool part where like he's like kind of like starting with that painting and just like stopping it. And I kind of kind of get like that like artistic artistic sense where like you can kind of fiddle with something and revisit it and be like you know I need to work on this or just stop or it's done from here or or whatnot. But in terms of like his creation and how he evolves from like this standard like mathematical portrait painter to like this, I don't know, whatever he evolved into. I don't know. It just seems like, I don't know. He, he thinks about it. He sits on a little stool in the art studio, looks at the killing commendatore and, and goes from there. I don't know. I'm, I feel mixed on it. Yeah. I, I, I guess like my thing, like, yeah, Casey brought up this, this, the, the man in the white Subaru Forester, which who is this like, yeah dude or entity he thinks he sees him again later right when when him and um masahiko stop at that like rest stop or whatever on their he way could to see be a double metaphor on their way to, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> on their way to see tomohiko amada um and you know i i guess my my issue with the, his description of trying to paint that painting as as casey said he basically the painting says stop painting me or whatever, and, and and I guess it just feels dis like like not satisfying to me because him as the artist feels passive. He just sort of waits to be told what to do or what not to do by the idea or by this or that entity or whatever. And like, I just I don't know. Maybe that is how it works. I guess, but to get back to something that Matt said earlier, that doesn't necessarily make for engaging reading like seeing just oh, i'm just gonna wait around until i'm told what to do artistically yeah i don't know i mean i think this can fit into the to the category of for some people that it could be a lot of a filler 
of this book that like could have been written out. I don't want to get into that discussion again. But you know, I think it I mean maybe he's passive too because he's in a passive state. You have to think about that too. It's like he's in a even though he's not admitting it to himself, which is very common Murakami theme, obviously like not facing your trauma, he's maybe not pursuing it to a high degree potentially because he's in a state of trauma because of his wife leaving him. Um, but even regardless of that fact, I still found it to be a very uh, realistic depiction of how someone can go about creating art, especially art that they haven't made in like many years. Like I think that's still a very prominent factor when thinking about this is like he's been making art a certain way for years like do, doing commission work and now he's trying to change how he makes art and that requires a lot of thought and you know i uh i don't make art like particularly like that but i, I, I know just, people I that do i kind of want to push back a little bit there there there's but no you're wrong. There, there's no you're thought wrong. there's no thought involved he just waits around for some random spring of inspiration he doesn't think about it really at all that's remind how, that's me what can happen though that's how like that is how a lot of artists work. I mean, maybe I'm just saying, but you, but you said it requires a lot of thought. And so which is it, I guess? Well, I mean, uh, okay. I said it requires a lot of thought, but it maybe it requires a lot of time because like he, he needs to sit with it and wait for the inspiration to happen. And I'm not saying that that's a good way about to go about it. Um, but that's, that's how I saw what was happening. He was like, he was waiting for an idea to come to him, waiting for the desire to come back. Um, it just felt felt very realistic. What were you What were you about to say, Casey? I was going to say, like, remind me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I think like his first step away from his like standard portrait painting is is obviously with Menchiki, but I forget his like artistic like how he goes about painting that in a different way because like he obviously like um messes around with like different like paints and like i forget and remind me like but like how does he like branch off and like from there like change his artistic style i, I actually think that's a good question because it's not super clear in the text like he, he talks about feeling very differently about his painting of menshiki but like I don't know. I don't think I don't know about you guys, but I couldn't describe what that painting actually looks like. The the big right? the like, big I I think the the thing that gets the the word that is used to describe the the paradigm shift and how how he works is is unfinished, which I think is just part of more about the themes of the novel than I would say yeah, like a successful depiction of like a really granular kind of accurate depiction. It might be an accurate depiction of like I think to give Paul some credit, like potentially the mindset of of a painter, right? Like what you would go through mentally as you were working. But yeah, I, gu I guess maybe it leaves a little bit to be desired and, and is more just a uh, an analog to writing um, and to the notions of narrative that I feel like, again, Murakami ultimately wants to get to and therefore like, when he paints Manchiki <coughs> and Marie and stuff and the man in the white Subaru Forester, they're all not finished technically by his previous definition, but, but he still like enjoys he how they look. 
he 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 consider I'm I, I I'm just maybe I'm just being a dumb dumb not remembering because I don't read the book. It the, he considered he himself considers the Manshiki portrait unfinished. I thought that he actually. I thought he that considered one that one finished. It was the it was the uh, the man in the Subaru Forester that he considered and 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 the and Marie's yeah. portrait. Right, but, but he also but people that saw the painting of the man in the Subaru Forester thought that it was finished. I think it was. Um, Mashahiko that said that. Mm. Um, but and, like, and but Marie, again, just Marie the, sees it also and says the same thing. Yeah, but I mean, just to be the odd man out again, uh, I think there are <clears throat> there are clear parallels here between uh, Tomohiko Omada too having a resurgence because he had he had a particular way of painting when he was younger and then switched it completely and became this millionaire painter. Um, and I guess we haven't talked about that enough, really, mm-hmm. is, like, what are the parallels between these two characters? Um, do their actual journeys, like, emotionally coincide, or is it just, like, purely circumstantial? Um, but, yeah, I think that is a theme of the book, too, is just, like, a resurgence or a renaissance or a major change an artist can have. And... Um, I'm just still stating that I think it was a good depiction of the process in which an artist can take to change. Before we be slow. Before we move on, can we just take a second to flag that um, one of Casey's nicknames in our childhood, as the Giga Chad he is, was Renaissance. Is that right? Not. That's kind of. All I had a thing about briefly the Renaissance. Yeah, as a type of what we, facial hair. Yeah, to what, be we, precise. what we called we called the Renaissance a mustache with a little goatee thing, and then a thing under your lip. And in case you had that for a little while, well, we yeah, both we big, both did. We rocked the, the Renaissance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Otherwise known as the scumbag, but yes. if you're in the know, it's the Renaissance. So we were just kind of two guys walking around with that facial hair, thinking we were really cool, and yeah. That's part uh, of our past forever. The highlight of the Renaissance for me was this is not related to anything. I shouldn't tell the story, but um, tell it. someone Go on, in passing King. saw me we in the Renaissance, and they they asked if I was French, and I said <laughs> oh, no. Dude. But it, I felt so cool, dude. That Damn. is so fucking Renaissance. Damn, dude. That is so. You gotta write that on your fucking tombstone, man. Not even connected, but it feels Renaissance. That would be an amazing <laughs> fucking epitaph, Casey. Once mistaken for French. <laughs> in parentheses due to renaissance mustache <laughs> that's sweet dude i'm fucking jealous i never got anywhere close to that kind of interaction same and to clarify he what he had an accent and he was french so Ooh, oh he was looking for buds burying the lead anyways we can cut that and go back to oh the we're not cutting no that's, oh, that's no. the juice if, right if, there if, baby. if murakami hears this story he might want to write a whole story out of it from that one little sentence and it would be if, 800 uh, pages if he's not cutting pages. anything out of this book we're keeping everything <laughs> in this right. episode that's right bitch okay nothing's cut nothing that's is cut from this there episode. might be one thing including there might be one thing that i want cut out but it's too late you know we'll talk about it in, we'll talk about it in post yeah. yeah um I, I, yeah, you were talking about Amada, uh, his, like, yeah, I, I think you're right. There, that's another just, like, random, not random at all. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know. That's, like, uh, so fucking random. I'm, like, so fucking random. 
took like heaps of molly and went to the club. Uh, Amada's shifts into creating Killing Commendatory. It's the name of the fucking book. It's the catalyst for the entire narrative. Uh, and what's fun is, is like they talk about closing the circle, right? Like th- th- that's how they stop a particular like looped chain of events, or they have to loop off a chain of events. Um, and I was just thinking of like an Ouroboros and all this kind of stuff. There's obviously Murakami has used w- wells and pits uh, as uh, apertures and, and, and portals into alternative realms to the one human beings live in and all this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's all, it's all started by Amada's stylistic shift in order to express himself having uh, specifically like undergone grief over losing a loved one, which just permeates. Yes. Which just permeates like, well, no, his brother killed himself or no. Did his wife, his wife was murdered. His wife was murdered by, (coughs) by Nazis. Yeah. Nazis. Cause he, this is the, okay. This is sort of a, I'm not going to go into it. I don't want to finish your point Matt. but yeah, Amada was in Vienna during World War II and was part of like a resistance group against the Nazis yeah. and his wife was captured and killed or his girlfriend. Right. So that that that's what spurred him to and then he was detained and tortured and uh, uh extradited by you know at that time like the Japanese allyship with with Germany to he barely escaped with his life. Um, tickled. He was tickled uncontrollably. Yes. Yeah. Tickled torture. <laughs> uh, and then he proceeded to make the painting. And I, I think also significantly the, it was the idea was that it was just for himself, right? Like he, he was, he had no intention of showing anyone. It was not um, for public consumption. It was, it was quote unquote pure, right? Expression. Um, and that this is, and no one thing. knows about it. Right. It pr- it's probably worth a million dollars. At Jim least, man. dude. <laughs> at least at the million dollar store. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have anything smart to say about that. It's just more like that is the object around which everything orbits. And uh, yeah. And just like it's what starts this chain of events that is kind of in a some ways impotently self-contained. Like, you know, the only reason anything happens in the book is because of this, and then it all resolves in this weird way that doesn't even feel like a resolution. There's just more Mm. questions opened up, and uh, people just kind of, like, go on with their lives. Uh, And... But, yeah, I think the key is, like, it's this... I I think that the painting is supposed to represent some sort of um, unadulterated, pure expression specifically of thwarted love, which I think, again, dovetails into just, like, thwarted connections with other people. And that just kind of being actually the controlling idea of the entire book. Yeah, which is also, I mean, that's also a very common theme in Murakami's other books, I would say. You know, I'm reading Men Without Women right now, and that's, like, thwarted connections is totally how I would describe the theme of that book. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, Murakami 
is is actually very interested in realism, <laughs> even though he uses <laughs> magical realism. But I, I think what's the like, opposite of magical realism? Uh, sober. <laughs> what's the opposite <laughs> of magic? Math? Like just math realism or <laughs> math realism? Muggle, muggle realism. Muggle. <laughs> muggle. <laughs> yes. Yes. So useful for us. That is great because it proves that you listen to the end of our podcast. Yes, I have to tie it in somehow. Yes, dude. <laughs> Holy shit. But uh, this, I mean, I, I think it's true though. Like he, I think that his books are kind of a snapshot of how people interact with uh, with anyone in their lives. Like you, you never totally get the, the full picture, and then you know, you die, or someone you know dies, or they move away. You know. It's like y- y- there isn't a lot of resolution in life, and that's one thing I really appreciate about Murakami's books is that like it feels very real to me to to hear certain stories or learn about certain characters, and then they're just freaking gone, and you don't get the resolution of their whole life or nothing connects because that I mean that's real to that's me. Real. So, which get that gets back to the point that, that you were making earlier making about like, um, you know, how do you get to know people? It's in these. Like day to day moments when they make salads, when they fucking you know just like show up and knock at your door. It's that's that that is like realism, muggle realism in a in a way maybe too muggle much, realism. right? Um, maybe it's, you know you could make the argument that it's too much, but it's very fucking real in my experience. Yeah, yeah it kind of feels like Murakami is um like a Craig. What is that Craigslist like Close Encounters or whatever it's called? What is it called? That they they took it down. Where like you would write something about. Uh, never mind. I had a joke, but it didn't land. And let's it's move on. Well, you uh, just, you didn't know what it was called. I know what it's I called, it called, but I don't want to reveal how much I know about it. Craigslist ads. Casual encounters. Casual yes. encounters. Yeah. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah. So What's the, uh, I don't know. Sh- yeah. Missed, missed connections with people you could have... Oh, been missed connections. With. Missed yeah, connections. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what, what I was yeah, thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Oh, hi, Paul. Golf clap. <laughs> oh, hi, Paul. You're so funny. You're here's my a, favorite customer. Here's a question that I have. So you mentioned... Host. You mentioned a minute ago, Matt, that the painting and the book have the same name. Significance? What is it? <laughs> Art, what is it? Another <laughs> another big question of the book. Does it, is, you know, is it is it that direct, right? That that this is Murakami's killing commendatore. Like this book is the same. He is the Tomohiko Amada of this book, or like is it more or less or subtle than that? I don't I don't think he's trying to do some sort of equivalent to the painting at all. But I agree. It does feel. I don't think it fits there. What What do you think it is, Casey? Yeah. Uh, in a super basic sense, just the main title of the painting. <laughs> it's, the it's the thing. It's the thing. It's the it's the big painting thing yeah. in the book. Which is. What would you say? How would you? <laughs> How would you elaborate on this? No, I guess it's just, <laughs> I, all I meant was like, is is it? Ooh, that's un. Uh, that's that's frustrating, Casey. Like, so he's narrative he's describing, right? Like, 
I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I thought it might be more than that, right? Because there's all these mirrors, right? There's all these parallels. Uh, the narrator and Tomohiko Mata have parallels that happen yeah. in their lives in terms of, right? Like, like Paul said, they have this artistic turning point and whatever. And I guess I was just wondering if like this book, if somehow Murakami thought that this book represented that for himself also, which seems unintuitive because as we've said, it contains so many sort of repeated themes and like touchstones that Murakami, I guess I was just wondering like how he saw himself relating to the painting, right? And why he made the title of the book the same as the title of the painting. Yeah, it's like, in one sense, right? Like, yeah, the basic interpretation would be like, I'm doing what that painting did. I am I am expressing myself as purely as possible in the art that I have refined for a long time while also, I guess, in some ways, like, not doing what I've done for a long time. Which I think, I don't know, you said earlier, Matt, that this book is confessional in a way that's like not obvious and i think yeah, maybe I think that plays right. in here i think that's right yeah the only thing i would say is that if he, if this was his personal killing commendatory we would have never read it it would have been in, in his attic under a sheet right <laughs> true we right. would have had to have waited until he was in a nursing home and then imagine just a book under a sheet in an attic <laughs> Maybe and it's like fully printed up. it looks it looks exactly like this <laughs> <laughs> it was it was one copy printed. One copy. Wait, Paul, I have it too. Wait, I have it too. Let's all Wait, hang it up and take a fucking hold it up. photo. Yeah, I actually have it. I have let's do a screenshot. Should we do? Oh, hang on. Should we? This will be the thumbnail for the. Uh, right, ready? Three, two, one. All right. Hopefully, I got it. It doesn't tell me if the screenshot works. Well, I took a couple too. So if you didn't, I got it. Nice. Um, but I don't know. That that that's quite the like. Um, presumption there you know that's that's a dangerous move mm. um it's like when uh at the end of inglorious bastards uh they carve the the swastika and uh, i think it's christoph holtz's head and then uh what's his face says this is my masterpiece <laughs> and everyone is like that is quentin tarantino yep just saying that, and that kind of sucked. <laughs> like, that, and like, that's why I'll never watch that movie. No, nah, the movie's <laughs> good, dude. The movie's good, but um, just a lot of of a lot there. Well, you need some big swanging balls to say something like that. You, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's, it's, I get it's what, an invitation I get what you to ridicule. But like, when I after I finished this, I wasn't like, oh, this is his masterpiece. This mm. is the best book of his. Yeah, no, no. I thought that. Certainly not. Did you really? Well, you've only read two, so Casey's I've the only expert. Read two. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm not the expert. Casey's the expert. Even though I'm, I'm the self-proclaimed no, I'm Murakami man. It's personal. Uh, yeah, it's not business. It's personal. So, <laughs> when you told me about this book, Paul, and like the, I read the back cover. I was like, oh, this, this does describe you. <laughs> I know. I know yeah, why you I love this book. I can't Ooh, get Paul's away a depressed, the divorced, uh, cringe artist. Yes. <laughs> You cringe? said it earlier, so I can say it now. <laughs> Am I cringe? Gabe's making fun of me like crazy this episode. It says well, I'm not an artist. Like and Matt I'm said, cringe. I didn't say, well, dude, dude, I did not <laughs> say right. you weren't an artist. All right, called you my cringe, shit is coming off. No, I, no, I did call you cringe. <laughs> oh my god. 
What do you okay, say? So, so, so speaking of Nazis, one thing that You're I want to... Yeah, well, I know. <laughs> cringe is the new based. Um, so I'm happy. S- speaking of Nazis, one thing that I wanted to bring out or ask you y'all about is that one thing that I in reading all of the fucking Goodreads reviews and the fu- even even the you know mainstream literary review publication reviews about this book, one thing that I didn't see talked about a lot was the political dimensions. It seems to me that it is important that Tomohiko Amada's artistic shift coincided with like a really violent event in World War II and he chose as his kind of hidden masterpiece this like allegorical um you know recreation of this moment that he experienced in the the sort of throes of war um and you know i i i I was doing a little bit of research not to flex um and read read a couple things you're flexing i'm not i'm not i'm not flexing i genuinely think this is like relevant but so Odawara, which is where this book takes yeah. place, right, was um, the last place that was bombed anywhere in the world in World War II. It was the, the day of Japan's surrender in World War II, August 15th, 1945. And the American planes, as they were leaving Japan, basically dropped excess bombs on Odawara as they were leaving the country that they didn't need and it, it and it wasn't this didn't come out in the official record until like the 90s like the 1990s um and it 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 feels like important to me in some way that this book takes place there and that you know um Tomohiko Amada's sort of like foundational trauma is so intimately connected with the war and I, I just sort of wonder about, like, you know, these parallels between the narrator and Tomohiko Amada and, um, you know, like, like the sort of in- generational inheritance of trauma. And uh, I don't know, like, maybe maybe I'm reaching, but, like, this all sort of came through to me kind of, it, it, you know, forcefully in the book. And by the way, the time period uh, of the bombs that were dropped in that final air raid on Odawara, which again, the last one of World War II was between one and two fifty AM, which is when the narrator hears the bell from the well. Oh shit. Wow. That's crazy. Is that real? Yeah, that, no, that's real. You can look it up. Wait, was what time are you sure that it I thought that it was at like three three AM. No, what? it's between one no. and two two two, no, okay. two thirty, two fifty. Yeah. Where I'll meet myself for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, good. So I guess it just got me thinking, uh, and and one of the other things, just to one more sort of layer on the on the cake here, is that the final chapter of because this book was originally published in two volumes in the in in Japan when it was first very first written, and um, the the final chapter of the first volume, which is on page three sixty three, uh, for you all, it's chapter thirty two. It's just a long quote from a memoir of the last survivor of the Treblinka concentration camp. Um, and that's the whole chapter. And it's about someone who painted portraits of the other prisoners at Treblinka. Yes. Um, and, and also so, uh, uh, Amada's um, brother, 
and Amada himself, right? I, I think were yeah. involved in the Nanjing massacre. Yes. Yep. Um, Which was yeah. not World War II, but that was the Second Sino-Japanese War. But it was yes. in 1937, like just before Japan, you know, was. You know, a few yeah, years I, I would. I would just roll it in with yeah. the same sort yes. of like out war trauma. Violence. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Exactly. So I don't know. I felt like like for me, this book was much much more political than is maybe like immediately obvious. And I, I guess I just wanted to throw that out there. I think it might be a lot more political than most, if not all Murakami novels, even though I haven't, I've only read two. Um, but I wouldn't, I can't, I, I'm not sure if you're, you're willing to state that it is a major factor um, I, I, I beyond am. anything except the except the personal trauma of Tomiko Amada. Well, but that's kind of um, the whole thing, right? Is that and it's this whole sort of the the way that the narrator kind of is grappling with and inheriting because at the end, in that critical pivotal moment, as you said, Paul, when Amada and the narrator are in the the hospital room, both looking at the commendatore. And sort of seeing potentially different things, but that that ultimately the commendatory represents both of their trauma. For Amada, we don't know exactly what it is, but we know it's associated with his time in Vienna during the war. And for uh, you know the narrator, we can talk about maybe his wife or, or or whatever. But but we're talking about like inheriting and sort of viewing the same trauma, but it it morphing depending on your situation and context. It, to me, it's it, it felt that way. I'm just not. I'm not willing to point that that is like the main focus that Murakami was 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 focusing at, though. I think I think it's more so that like. What if I said it's going to make me give the book a higher score if it was? I don't. I, cool. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I I don't know. I I don't think that there's enough clues there to point that Murakami is just trying to state that war bad, therefore this book happened. Like I, that's not what I, I was saying. Yeah, but I'm I'm just I, I I think it's just like a factor um and a stepping off point for Tomiko Mata's character. But I, I wouldn't I don't know. I, I definitely see your point, but I I'm not I'm not willing to point to it as a direct theme. I think I think the setting matters though, and I think that I, I don't know. Yeah. That that the fact that the final I don't know. I, I guess I would just ask for an explanation about that final chapter for volume one. It's the, it, it is labeled chapter 32 and it's literally just a quote from a Holocaust memoir. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it has, I think it might have be a function of, of Murakami himself's sort of age and general preoccupations historically with World War II in the same way that World War II is the, a kind of pivotal point for a lot of different places around the world culturally. Um, and then especially for people around his age, you know, he'd be essentially a baby boomer if he were American. So it's just like, uh, and, and, and he brings up World War II stuff and um, if not directly World War II, like uh, again, yeah, uh, t tensions between China and Japan around that time period as well. And some other his books, um, I think it's more like if that's not the foundational trauma that creates the double metaphor or whatever his version of like the evil entities that exist that w will metastasize into like the bad ideas that are reified into to like 
things of, that, that create action in the world that are harmful, uh, you know, th- 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 then that th- then that maybe diffuses some of their political import while still saying like, look, no, actually, like these things occur; they create the rationale for people's behavior um, in all of these horrific, negative ways, reactively. And that they also transmute into different guises over time. Uh, and so you can have, like, an idea, quote-unquote, be a commendatory or, like, fucking someone's dead mom and all this kind of stuff. But it is, a s- in essence, the same thing. It's a trauma, right? Like, Marie saw her probably the commendatory. She saw the commendatory, but then at some point, like, s- you know, the narrator sees, hears his dead sister. And uh, you know the and mom. has to crawl through the cave, which is where he thought she almost died when they were young. Right. So I, I will say that it's probably more to do with. It is probably more to do with trauma because overall, just based on in this book in particular, the the ratio of what's of 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 stuff dedicated to like World War Two is not large, but it is also yeah like the catalyzing event. So I mean I, I agree it's about trauma, but I just think trauma is. I think I guess I guess I would just say the line between individual trauma and like group or national or generational trauma is a lot more blurry than maybe we think it is. That's all I'd yeah. say. Yeah. And and yeah, how how that stuff reverberates out is 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 impossible to trace in most ways. Yeah, I I agree with that. Should we bring this um boat to port? Casey, I'm sorry so to keep you to talk about. for so long, but I, I, I we are, I don't know what what, what time we're at. But we are at uh, two hours and eight minutes. You're not keeping me at all. I could go on. Okay, not, not so bad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump the gun here. I got, I got, I got nowhere to be, motherfuckers. I, I have nowhere to be. I'm here for you. <laughs> There's so um, much more we could talk about in this. There, video. there is a lot more. Yeah. Well, okay. so are, what? Lay it out. I have a couple other things, but what do y'all want to talk about? Oh, interesting. Oh, I had I have to look through my notes. Okay, well, so here's the next thing that I had on my list. I read in a lot of the the uh, sort of initial reviews when this book came out and some of the later ones that um, this was sort of a uh, not a retelling, but there were connections with um, specifically the Great Gatsby. And I heard that too. Yeah, I, I, and yeah, Menchiki looking the, out. Yes, Menchiki being this rich. You know, across the, the 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 water, in this case, a valley. Um, you know, mysterious figure, sort of playboy, rich, whatever, whatever. But also deeply kind of fucked up um, character, and uh, the narrator being the analog of Nick. Um, did did that come through for you guys reading it, or like, did, or no. did you? That, was that only something <laughs> after no. the fact, or but 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 did it make sense after the fact? Do you think it's relevant or important? I I, I don't know how I felt about that. I, I mean, honestly, we're reading the Great Gatsby. I haven't read the Great Gatsby in since high school, so I, I really same. don't even remember. So I can I I would have to read it, it first. Has no, we, it's so ludicrous. I I don't know if if that was Murakami's overt goal. Then I'll have to just contend with that, but I don't think he said that. I don't know. Did he? Matt, the author's dead, dude. I no. I, I j- also I, I just didn't pick up on that. Is more what I'm trying to say. I. It feels like such a thin 
It feels I, like an I didn't pick up on it either, really. And I just like reading reviews. I I heard people say that. Read people say that, but yeah, I mean, it did kind of cropped up enough. Can, where I, yeah. yeah, it it came up, but I wasn't I wasn't thinking about it when it happened. There's a rich guy, it, it, I, but I get well. Okay, so to 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 complicate it a little bit, right? I agree. It didn't jump out to me at all as I was reading it, but going back and reading some of the reviews and some of the sort of promotional material, whatever, I could, could sort of make it work. And, you know, particularly like, I, you know, I don't know. Right. Again, maybe it's a stretch, but, um, I think the sort of, you know, characterizations check out for me a little bit, um, in terms of, you know, Minshiki and the narrator as Gatsby and Nick. I don't know that it really adds much. It like it feels more like maybe like an Easter egg than anything, if that makes sense. But um, it feels yeah, it like an idea like that. A... Oh, I just oh. I was gonna. It, it's just like it feels like one of those ideas that somebody starts out with being like, "I'm going to orient my tale around the structure of the Great Gatsby," and then you know. Notably, again, not to harp on this shit, Great Gatsby is a very short No, that novel. is true. And, uh, you know, this is just buried under everything else that's being discussed, so to the point where I'm like, yeah, maybe at one point it was an idea, but I, I, it feels not relevant. Like the commendatory, an idea? Or is Whoa. it a double metaphor? <laughs> I honestly, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. That shit, that whole shit was cringe to me. It was... I thought it was sort of interesting when the commendatore was like, I'm an idea, and we don't really know what that means. And he's kind of weird, and he refers to individuals with plural nouns. My friend, he's talking to one person, he's like, my friends. Okay, yeah. weird, cool, interesting. I don't know what that means. But then he gets to the under, he gets to the upside down, and oh, oh, we just, we're bas- we basically just live in the world of the fucking phantom tollbooth uh, word kingdom where it's like, I'm a simile. I'm a, like I, that shit was cringe to me a little bit. Yeah. Conjunction junction. Yeah. Though. No, literally. Yeah. yeah. Like literally yeah. there was probably like a road called conjunction junction, conjunction junction. And I didn't, I, it just, I, ugh, I, it felt like too, it felt as Matt said earlier, a little on the nose in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, uh, my second read through, I thought that it felt a little bit like, uh, like, trying to be philosophically creative jargon. I think I said that earlier. Um, it just, it, yeah, it, it was kind of cringe to me. Um, it kind of felt like uh, him trying to write data from Star Trek into this because um, data can't, he can't say contractions because he's an android. And right. uh, I just wanted to talk about Star Trek. That's your, but, t- yeah. that's your uh, trademarked Paul Star Trek tie-in for the episode. Right. There yeah. it is. You got one. But yeah, and I don't know. I didn't I, I was into it on my first read through, but my second read through I was just kinda like, eh, this is uh it's not doing it for me. And it, it, it took uh, it felt shitty to feel those cringe moments while they were in the upside down, which was such an uh amazing fifty pages. It just felt like uh I don't want this here. I mean yeah. part overall the upside down owned. I, I mean a lot of it was it it you know, I I looked past it, especially my first read through. I was enthralled what was happening, but yeah, the it second owns. It's also just a black void, so I don't know how much it could own. No, it's not. 
It's just a void. No, what do you mean? No, it isn't. There's a river, and there's a forest, and there's caves. And there's beautiful beautiful descriptions about how he drinks water, mm-hmm. and it doesn't like give him any... Uh, yeah. I want to know what the water was the power. I thought, I it thought was, that like, shit the, was very affecting. The river Lethe or whatever, and he was going to like forget everything. But I, he was imbued with something, but I, I don't know what it was. It made him like of the place somehow. Mm. Sounds like you just read a Mirakami novel if you... If you read something and didn't know what happened, yeah, I di- I totally disagree with that with that assessment, Matt. I thought it was I thought the descriptions of of the upside down were generally like very affecting and and worked for me. Again, maybe it's just because I love the Phantom Tollbooth so much. <laughs> I know that sounds like an insult because I'm comparing it no, to a children's no. book, but that fucking go reread that book. That book is fucking the juice, and anything that is compared to the Phantom Tollbooth is a compliment. Okay. Nice. I wasn't taking it as not that, because I also like the Phantom Toll Booth. It just uh, no, I'm I'm, I'm I, I enjoyed that sequence, and I didn't know what I would have wanted otherwise. You know, from the sequence, really. You know, you, you he could be like, fucking. In some sort of like on a page, like in a white place with like <laughs> black ink, motherfucking, motherfucking Paper Mario, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Paper Mario, aka you know, th- there's a monster in this book with Grover or something like. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I actually did like that that portion, um, but it was in the service of generally, like you were saying, a little bit. Um, this, you're trying to reify ideas and concepts, and uh, it feels a little bit like as basic as that would be, right? Like, uh, what if peace on Earth were a big heart that <laughs> floated around and like made everyone warm feeling, and you know, it's just like that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very easily can lapse into something like that. But I think that the, the the overall like import of, of, of that journey and whatever was was much darker because it was void. Uh, yeah, well, okay. What do you mean void, though? It, it the the place was supposed to be like the human imagination, like the leftover potentiality of human imagination. So there's nothing until there's something. I get that, right? Like. There's not anything, there's some like... Or everything is what you think it is. Exactly right. It's, you know, it's like when you go see aliens in a a civilization that are too advanced and they're like, we appear as the form that's most conducive to you not freaking out. Right, right, right. So, you know, yeah, I I, I No, Paul, they literally say that. The commendatory literally says that. Does he? He, I mean, not, not word for word, but he says like... I appear the way that the person that I'm appearing to needs me to appear or something like that. Right. Yeah. Which is why which is why Tomohiko Amada sees him as something different than the narrator does in the hospital room. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think my disagreement comes with thinking that they're like more advanced than what no, they No, that was an like, analogy. That was just an analogy. Yeah, I was just okay, yeah. making a joke kind of uh, just like when something is so outside of the realm of the, of the human understanding you tend to lean on and i think this again is part of the the point of the <laughs> of this you lean on metaphor and you right. lean on analogy and 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 it, once again it just kind of like spirals into itself um 
but ultimately there's just human lives being led uh, that just kind of continue onward with their questions unresolved. And I think, Paul, you mentioned that is more true to life. And I, I agree with you uh, for the most part. You know, like, that's not necessarily how a narrative has to be in, in every case, but, like, for the purposes of, of this story and this book and I think Murakami's general themes he's been exploring for, like, 30 years, uh, yes, this, this feels like something of a distillation. Yeah, and that's why I, I, I brought it up earlier and no one responded. But I, I do kind of think of um, this book it's as being we, a little... It's because we hate you, bro. Yeah. I know it is. Don't respond. It, uh, I'm going to respond. <laughs> it <laughs> feels right, a little go, bit postmodern to me. And maybe it isn't. But, I mean, my understanding of po- postmodernism, especially after our last review, is that, like, I don't know. There's a lot of subjectivism. Um there's a lot of like just discussion and whether or not there's any like reason behind anything that's written. Um, and I, I just find those to be postmodern uh, tropes and tendencies. I mean, does it, does it not fit enough of the categories to be depicted as that or Casey, you said you were going to respond. I guess. Yeah. Uh, it fits that category, Paul. Thank you. There's one. Uh, You know, to me, like, when I think about, you know, I would say no. I I would say no. It's, you know, I I think it is a sort of problematic, not problematic, but a lot of people associate postmodernism with just, oh, it's just descriptions of subjectivity. And that's not the point, right? Like, everything is, like, People have been describing subjective experiences since for for forever. That's not inherently postmodern. Being like, oh, my experience of this is such and such. Um, is it soft postmodernism? I don't think so. I don't think so. Is it soft sci-fi? Yeah, sci-fi elements. I would give it like a, a two. What about fantasy elements? Fantasy elements, a two. Yeah. Or a three. Nice. Yeah, I, I would not roll in Murakami at all with with what I would what I would think of as the postmodern tradition. Also just because like I I equate well, I mean, it this, with this one in particular. Well, I mean you yourself a minute ago, Paul, described it as muggle realism. No, Which is like, <laughs> I know, but that we got to let Casey. That's a Casey. I'm trademarking know, that right now. Yeah, yeah, no one else can use that. We'll, we will cite you. I'm, yeah. I personally am going to I'm use that kidding. on this no, podcast a lot, and I will. We'll just have you. a bibliography each podcast. It's it's open to everyone on this podcast. But 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 that's that can't be the same as postmodernism. Like like the idea that like you know what I mean. Like those things. Oh, yeah, are, I see what you mean. Yeah, those are on yeah. the opposite end of the I, spectrum. I, yeah, I'm an idiot. Because you're right. I mean, I think that Murakami is actually trying to get at something that is very real, which is inherently not postmodern. I'm working through my ideas on this podcast. You know, I love that. It's good. We, we all love, love to that. see it. We're in all real time. That. We're all doing that. Yeah, I just yeah. bumble through everything. I'm constantly like, uh, I say like a ton. I hate all my fucking ticks and whatever. But uh, 
I'm working through my sexuality on this podcast. <laughs> we hope to hear what you come up with. <laughs> Me too. And I mean, so far, I think I'm a furry. <laughs> oh, nice, dude. Yeah, I think I'm leaning towards that. I think I'm a Murray commie. Ooh. Oh, wow. Murray. Very interesting. A Murray. <laughs> my Mersona. Oh, my God, dude. My Mersona. Yeah, he's not postmodern in... in I don't, I don't want to say that with... Bill Murray commie. Yes. Okay. okay. Whoa, God. How far? How deep does rabbit hole go? <laughs> right. Exactly. Lewis Carroll. This book. Um, I mean, again, I, I, I I'm, I'm kind of with Paul a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it fucking means to be postmodern. I don't know what the, the full extent of that definition entails, but. I, I think a lot of what people describe as like this kind of lulling hypnotic effect of Murakami's prose style where just things occur and a plot unfolds uh, and there's like a mystery and there's some like mysterious uh, uh, I don't want to just keep saying magical realism but you know like uh, hy- supernatural uh, <laughs> shit happens and and you're just like wow I just love this story I love the story like you, oh I made soup and uh, then he, he lost his cat, and he went down the alleyway to find him, and, and then the cat was in a portal. <laughs> and you're just yeah. like, hell, you're just like, fuck yeah, this is, this is great. Um, Let's go. And that's kind of just fantastical, but not yeah, I, I, overly yeah. concerned, right, with, like, a, awareness of narrative as a form right. and whatnot. And I agree that this might get the closest I've, I've personally seen in my limited experience reading his stuff where he's officially going like, what if ideas were things and yet not? Uh, and they were describing how, you know, they have limited capacity to intervene in the real world, quote unquote, and blah, blah, blah. And like, he, he does veer close, but he sticks to, I, I feel like he still sticks in within the realm of, I don't know. I, it's more instinctive, yeah. maybe. He's, he's not, he doesn't go there. He does, he's not... Postmodernism doesn't mean doesn't it, it it doesn't just mean like weird, you know what I mean? And I guess like that's kind of the I'm not saying you're saying that. I know, I know, I know, I know you're not saying conceded. that. Okay. Conceded. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He does. Sk- I think he does kind of skirt it though with this one, right? Well, like, I mean, he 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 is concerned. I think he is concerned here and and in general with the ways in which what we commonly consider to be reality is either not or bleeds into things that are other than what we commonly conceive of as reality. It's really, and it's that really is like, close to I Sebastian I think you're right. Knight. That is like as on the verge of a postmodern concern, but it, 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 I don't know. It's not, for me, it doesn't quite get there. I do actually, Soft. I'm thinking about yeah. it because... Yeah, like, maybe you're right. Soft postmodernism. Because like we, we, we were talking about Sebastian Knight, and sorry, I know you didn't read this one, Casey, but like... Uh, that's interesting, right? Because we were talking about how Nabokov, I think, had had basically a disdain for who would be formally called the postmodernist. All later literary criticism. But then we were like, the no- that novel felt postmodern, but that o- novel also felt relevant to this one, right? Where it's like, as we tell these stories, we're telling another story. We're telling another story. You know? Yeah, there's I think no, that's there's no end to it. That's one of the main reasons why I brought it up is because every sequel, every book is a sequel to the last book. It's turtles uh, all the I way ha- down, baby. Mm-hmm. I had that one on the mind. And I think that, you know, if uh, if Murakami had written 
novels up to this point that were drastically different than this one. I would say that this one is different than most of his novels, even though I have read, haven't read most of his novels, but I know enough about them, whatever. Um, it's different enough that it, 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 it displayed a change or at least a little tiny bit of a shift for his readers. But if they were, if this novel was drastically different, um, I think potentially he would be trying to flirt with postmodern ideas. But um, I get you. I don't think he's also not engaging with them. You know, like who the fuck has avoided this quandary? If you're a writer in the 21st century, you know, like there's no way. It's clear based on all of his references that he, that Murakami is well a well-read dude himself, right? Like he references contemporary and like philosophy and and like other writers and music and stuff. Like he's he's engaged culturally. Like yeah, so I I, I you're I, I agree with you kind of. Like I I don't think this book is strongly in that field, but and now that Murakami's like sort of older and this is his most recent full novel, I feel like he probably is in some sense trying to grapple more overtly may potentially with certain things. This is like raw speculation, right? Like but like you know, writers as they get into their older age, it is curious, you know, eventually this man will die and then he will have an oeuvre which you will be able to engage with as a closed circle in and of itself, and you will be able, you will then, all we will have are the inferences based on those and some biographical information about, like, and, and this is why I mentioned Spash and Knight, right? Like, about the trajectory of his thought. And so I think he is. I would say that's a postmodern, I would, I would offer a postmodern intervention here. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There are no closed circles. Um, ah, yes. There's no. Uh, an an oeuvre, the the meaning of an author's body of work doesn't end when they die, right? Right, like and that's, that's I I do think that's the point of this novel, and I do think that that's actually what he's saying. And um, right, that even when you quote unquote close the circle, it it, it like they do in this book in terms of like everyone's relationships to each other with Marie and whatever. It's it's in some sense arbitrary. Like yes, that moment in time and, and that that is has some modern, I, yeah. wait so yeah. gabe is 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 there not being any closed circles a, a very common postmodern idea um so so one of the okay so uh one of the early articulations of uh you know a, a, a vague definition of postmodernism came from jean-francois leotard who wrote a book called the postmodern condition nice flex and um, and his his argument in that book was that postmodernism, and this is not something that everybody accepts today, and whatever, whatever, can be best defined as the rejection of what he called meta narratives, right? So meta narratives were these ideas that, like, you know, Marxism is a meta narrative. History is directed by class struggle. Capitalism uh, will ultimately die and be replaced by communism, and then we'll be at the end, right? The circle will be closed. Um, apocalyptic Christianity is a meta narrative. Jesus died for our sins, then a bunch of generations live, and then the apocalypse comes, right? The circle is closed. 
those are all meta narratives and postmodernism is the rejection of those things, right? Like there's no simple tidy way to put a bow on human experience or human history. And that for him was one of the defining characteristics of postmodernism. So, so yeah, in time, that is sense, a, yes. time is a flat circle. Time is a flat unclosed circle. Unclosed circle like the universe. Yes expanding circle yeah well that's why that's why i would describe this book as be i mean it's so full of circles that aren't closed that's i think that's the dummy in me though is just like oh it's postmodern because uh the plot points no i, I, I see it yeah so that, i mean i think that was the only real reasoning i had is that like i thought that murakami was making a direct attempt to leave more circles uh, unclosed than he has previously, and I do see that because I, yeah, I, I guess I just think like from from Leotard's perspective again, this is like early articulation of postmodern, the, the definition of postmodernism, it's an active rejection, right? Like Murakami leaves a bunch of shit open, but like the postmodern mood is like there is no possibility of closing these circles. Right, like there's no, oh, okay. it's a rejection of of the closure of the meta narrative circle. Yeah, and I don't know if Murakami fully goes goes there, if that makes sense. No, because you, I mean, you can believe, you can, you know, tie your own strings together and think about what could happen after most of his novels. I would say you could concoct some sort of closure, even though. I'm always kind of leaning towards the idea that like they will be left unshut. Mm. Um, well, the closure yeah. is is that things are a bit out of your hands. That's yeah. that's what Gabe was saying a little critically before with the artistic process, right? Like, right. The closure comes with a renunciation of the idea that you will be able to create a narrative, or that like your inspiration is is going to come from some inner fire or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just going to, it's just like, it's just like uh, there are spirit realms and you are the conduit of things that have existed for centuries and this kind of thing more so, which is more of a, a modernist take yeah. on on uh, creation. Casper the Friendly Commendatore. <laughs> well, that's actually one thing I wanted to... For real. That's one thing I wanted to ask you guys about Murakami, actually, is and this book in particular, is that, like, um, I don't think Murakami ever really gives away his cards and shows exactly how he feels about the afterlife and ghosts and spirituality, even though th those are, like, very prominent things in all of his novels that I've read, is that there's, you know, there are supernatural, magical realism type beings um but I, I i don't think he ever clearly states or shows or um how he actually feels about that i think he he's interested in it my theory is that he's interested in it and thinks it's interesting to explore but i actually don't think he has a view himself but he he just likes to explore it but well, one thing that i'll say is that you know and again um you know, author, authorial uh, intent and authority or whatever. But one thing that I've heard Murakami say in interviews or read him say in interviews is that he's a little bit baffled by how weird he seems to Western audiences because in Japan, this idea of there being a sort of 
like spirit world that is like more or less readily readily accessible and permeable from our reality to that reality is sort of an accepted cultural trope whereas in the west it's 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 less so and so it it could be like to some degree a cultural thing um i don't know how far to, i don't know how that. far to take that but i've heard him say things to that effect yeah we yeah i've always been a little bit yeah go ahead matt we just have to, he 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 referenced like the idea that we have to like go through some ag in the west like there's usually some agonizing ritual initiation to like access the the other side or some sort of realm that wasn't whereas it's yeah i guess pressed up closer to our reality the kind of spiritual one yeah i mean i think it's i mean i haven't read that article gabe but i've always kind of suspected that is that like it is a cultural difference and it's kind of potentially within a lot of people that are from japan or from you know that region maybe is just like that's a part of their culture it has been part of their culture for a long time so it's 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 a part of their storytelling it's part of the way they interact and think about the world that is very foreign to westerners who are nihilistic or christian (laughs) right so it's just like when we're like oh it's so weird and like (laughs) there's like sprites and like a person went in a well and then like permeated into the nether realm uh and japanese people are like i went i went in a well yesterday i stayed there for 20 hours yeah spirited away is my entire life (laughs) yeah (laughs) which you know in saying feels a little bit like a simplification too but like yeah well yeah you know what i mean like in terms of the idea of it, again, as the key to this book, kind of being close at hand and not as easily dismissed as, as something. Yeah, they're like, my grandpa is a magical koi fish. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Ma- magical yeah. koi feelism? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, There's that whole sidebar, too, about like um, how, like, there's the story of like the the monks being buried in the pit mm-hmm. and just yeah. like meditating until their death, like um, ringing the bell and like just, I don't know, being in a state of I don't know meditation and dying. But yes. then, but then also like, there's that whole like. Oh, no, go ahead, Matt. I'm done. Well, th- 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 there's guys, that just whole, kiss already. There's that whole thing of like. Uh, <laughs> Where he tells that whole story, right, about monks that I forget that there's like a term, there's like a term for it, but like, um, yeah. but then one of them, there's a story about one of them being resurrected, and then he's like kind of a dick. Like, yeah. right, he, right, he right, spent, right, right. He spent je- his whole life attaining this ability to become hyper desiccated and like live as a, a fucking zombie for like a hundred years, and then he gets resurrected, and he's just like kind of like trying to like get pussy and like eat and drink and and do as much shit as possible basically like, chat shit he said yeah which like, i why was that what was the point of him having attained this sort of uh you know zen mastery well that, i don't I know what that has that to do lot. with the book but i liked i like that i just thought i i read that as as murakami um being critical of of monkery maybe of monkey monkery <laughs> <laughs> I like that term, monkery. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's, that's how I read it, though. Uh, that's kind of how I read it. Is that like 
that and that's what I mean by like I I'm never totally sure about how he feels like they're in they're in his novels but I read that section where he where he described the monk as being like this is fucking bullshit I should have died and I'm gonna have sex now um, I just thought he was being a little bit critical zombie gooner monk <laughs> yeah kind of okay though, listen right? I okay I, uh, speaking of the zombie in the pit thing again one more point that I want to bring up in connection with my theory about the World War II significance here is that, and, you know, I read an article in from a, you know, again, right, these are just Japanese authors and they were describing sort of how the pit, as Murakami describes it, was reminiscent of a bomb shelter. Like, it was, it was it, it's both a shrine, but also bomb shelters that were constructed in the region on a lot of families' properties because they were being bombed by the allies at the time. And it's, you know, if you think about how it's described, it's this concrete walled, you know, like yeah. pit in the ground that could could fit sort of that description. Also um, a vagina. But. And and then, well, right. Yeah, I, I know, again, right, this ambiguity. But, but it's also like you, you can't get out of it. Like if someone's in there, you can't get yeah, out. Yeah, that's true. The way that it's described, there's no there's no exit, right? Um, and, and, and then the bell was in this interpretation, kind of the the um, the bomb sirens that were played when there was air raids happening, and because it happens at the same time of night, right, like one to two thirty, one to three, whatever. Um, anyway, it it, it 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 sort of like again, this is that ambiguity. There's ambiguity. There's so many interpretations and like ways of ambiguity. Ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get. Well, I get okay. Where you bring it up. I was out. I was out the room for a second, but Paul, the books about World War Two uh, shows over. Bye. Well, no, no. Okay. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> if okay, Opening shut case. So if the bell, Easy clap. Uh, if the bell happens, but when the, uh, the same time as the air raids, it, which it does, bell, that's confirmed. That's facts. So that does actually make sense to me more that it it's directed towards his World War Two style trauma uh, t- uh amadas because if uh, because <laughs> the commendatory is the one that needed to die um he needed to you know be killed in the hospital room and once he dies and amada sees him die it's it it is like a cathartic experience for him emotionally yeah and it he, seems like he basically the, is the, able to die after that yeah, so still, I'm not totally agreeing with your point, but I, I do think that like we can point to the bell and the commendatory in particular as being the icon of his of his trauma, and um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I, did, I wish I researched more and knew that. <sighs> and we we could assume if Odawara was was yeah bombed in late stages, but it was also prepared for something like that. The last Which, place ever bombed in World War Two. That is super interesting. That um, has to be significant. It feels like it just has to. Well, it also feels like if Maria is is moving through some sort of unseen secret passage, it could just be connections amongst bunkers. You know? Yes. That, uh, I was in. Um, I went to uh, Croatia. Uh, uh, and uh, was, right. at, was, was in Japan, Zagreb, but you know. That place has some uh, now touristy uh, ra- roots, but it's all based on like 
wartime where yeah there's these there's a little network of tunnels that you can walk through <laughs> essentially right. that were like carved into the hillsides that pops you out in different parts of the town and that was all wartime shit i think that's actually a really like plausible interpretation because again like we said earlier like you never see Marie's secret secret passage that she always talks about but like if this was a place that was involved in the war yeah i think that totally makes sense Someone gets an A plus on their homework. Ooh, Gabe, what? Ooh. No, what? Matt, I didn't go to Croatia. Matt did. He's calling no, I just meant like the whole <laughs> no, uh, World War Two political. Yeah. Oh, you read discussion. articles? It's only because you I read, have. It's only because I have access to JSTOR. Yeah. You read extra. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not willing to have an Aaron Schwartz Schwartz fate <laughs> by trying to <laughs> read the same stuff you had. All right, let's um. It's basically like Gabe has like super like he got ingest or in you know injected with the superhuman thing in Marvel universe and Matt and I don't. <laughs> yes, we but we're still <laughs> heroes. Like uh, Captain are, Falcon. Everyone's hero. Everyone's a hero. Yeah, Captain I thought Falcon that was Captain Falcon. Falcon is from Super Smash Brothers. Yeah. Who am I thinking? <laughs> you mean the, you're about the Winter Falcon? The win- right. No, the yeah. Winter Soldier. Falcon. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Okay, the oh Captain God. Falcon. Right. I think that's the, the signal. It's the time Super to move. Smash America. Speaking of Marvel, it's time to move to the Super end game of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no one read any passages. That, that is true. That I is actually say true. That. Okay, that is true. Yes. Let's. I just want to call out. There were a few passages I really liked. Real quick. Pull it up, dude. About... Let's, we'll set aside some time. We. I, I was actually thinking that earlier. Yeah. It's a thick book. We get a thick episode. It's gonna go longer than normal, folks. Yeah, gotta, bitch. Uh, I know. Those. Hang in there. <laughs> we don't, I don't have to. I don't have to bring it up if you want to close no, this out. No, no, no. I, no. I, no. We need. We should read. We need. I don't have it highlighted. It's been a little while, but I really like the passages where it's the uh, the main character with his sister visiting the uncle, and they're 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 in these wind caves, yes. and it's talking about you know the the sister. In this quiet, only she can go into this this space, and she like goes through this little tunnel, and she's in this room that's like um, a complete darkness, like a room just for her. And I kind of got that too when like Minshiki was um, in the pit after an hour, and he's like, "Thank you for for getting me out after this. Like if I was if I wasn't here any longer, I would have lost myself." And same too with like Marie in Minshiki's house, like in that. The room of like her potential, like mother's belongings. Just like I'm completely safe in this room. Mm. I, I, you know, I, I love this room or whatnot. Like it, just feels like so familiar to me. So those were just like a few passages I, I liked. I don't have them marked for reading, but that's also a really stood out to me. That's also a really important parallel between the narrator's sister and Marie in the closet. Like, There's like three people that could be his sister yeah. reincarnated or something. Yeah. Which is a whole other dimension to it, right? Like Yeah. People embodying elements of your memories <laughs> and therefore potentially being partially people that died. Like, yeah. Yes. It, uh, that's a pretty interesting idea that gets just sort of, again, thrown out there. That's an awesome idea. I love it. Did Four <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! Now it's not an awesome idea. Fuck! Yeah, yeah Voldemort Paul. <laughs> did Sith Joker? Yeah, did Sith Voldemort? Joker. 
Did anyone else have other passages they wanted to read? Because, uh, yeah, I do. That did strike me that we haven't, we've been talking about this book for goddamn two hours and 45 minutes and no one's read a single word of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we read it. We didn't read it. Well, no, we read it, but we didn't I know. transmit our reading of it. I was but under I, the gun with this one a bit, so I just... Oh, I, I might. Uh, yeah. It, it feels okay, I it's hard wanna... to, 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 yeah, to reduce, though. Um, I'll just read any page at random. <laughs> okay. That's good. <laughs> yes. Um, I did want to bring up... Okay, on uh, on one on 496, I underlined um, a passage that goes... Uh, where uh, he was talking about Dostoevsky with uh, Manchiko. And I thought there were some like interesting ideas. <laughs> uh, what, what did I say? Masahiko. I looked at you. I looked you at my put Minshiki and Masahiko together, is all. Yeah, it's, that's funny. I'm a Westerner. Let's be real. Um, and therefore a racist. No, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I just can't pronounce. I don't have a good dialect of my own language anyway. I mean, I can't. Okay. Um. <laughs> Okay, uh, there there are lots of characters in Dostoevsky uh, who do crazy things just to prove that they are free people, unconstrained by God and society. Though looking at Russia back then, maybe they weren't so crazy after all. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, "It's more than just one way of looking at it." I wanted to tell I wanted to tell him. Indeed, it felt like everything around me was becoming unscrewed. That reality was losing its grip. If I lost my grip too then the craziness would get completely out of hand. But I couldn't tell Ma- Masahiko the whole story at this uh, story, the whole story at the stage of this game. Um, this is going to come to a conclusion. Hold on. I thought if they want it badly enough, there are channels through which reality can become unreal or unreality can enter the realm of, of the unreal. If we desire it that strongly, deep in our heart, but that didn't mean that we are free. It might demonstrate quite the opposite. And I wrote in my notes uh, that I, I think Murakami was trying to make a par- like a like a contradiction between between what Dostoevsky was trying to do and saying that like if any character has the freedom to do like whatever they wanted, um, does that actually make you free? And I think that's what the narrator is trying to go like kind of going through is that like he feels in a way that he is free to do anything because he's having these like crazy hallucinations that are totally unbelievable. And he kind of, I thought, I th- I thought from these passages that he kind of felt like he has the weird ability to, to do anything, but he has no control over it. And I thought that, Murakami was trying to make an argument against what Dostoevsky was saying, and that was just like an offhanded idea of this. I I like pages. that though, because right there's like um, for sure it because he's talking about Kirillov in the possessed who tries to shoot himself to prove that he's capable that of he doing anything. Doesn't give a shit about anything. Right, that like God is not in 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 control of his actions, and you know. This is again part of that like quote attributed about like if God doesn't exist, everything's permitted notion, um, which is in dumb dumb itself, idea by the way. Right, with like Kirillov, yeah. you know that in and of itself that 
like d- if freedom leads to a kind of nihilistic act of self-destruction, then is that really freedom? You know, like have you actually had your life improved? And that's not a that's not a indictment on free choice or even like a rule by something else. It's just sort of like you've taken the wrong step either way in this in this question by dying, by destroying yourself. Yeah, I, I almost, I kind of saw it as like a, like an ev- evolutionary response to freedom. Is that what, uh, that's what Murakami's trying to get at maybe? Is that like, w- once the idea of like true freedom from God or whatever comes into play, maybe that, maybe Dostoevsky's reaction was the first one or a first one, but it needs to be explored further to get down to the bottom of like what that truly means. And what it truly means to, like, maybe live a good life and be happy. Maybe. I don't know. I'm kind of stretching here. No, it's what all these people want. It's what all these people are seeking. It's what all these people, you know, it's the other thing that partially motivates them to do whatever. And why the questions of narrative still matter, you know, to these fictional lives of these fictional people who are supposed to be representations who are engaging with fictional versions of ideas <laughs> as entities and all this kind of shit like the, the again the controlling thing is still like misconnections love like human intimacy and 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 just what what it means to like live your day to day it's also why all the banal inclusions of drinking cold glasses of water and parboiling <laughs> vegetables right. are like are like weirdly soothing like you were saying Paul and weirdly like not weirdly even uh, just are comforting and kind of something that's very I think unique in in Murakami's writing style like his inclusion of that stuff is it is like at this point now a, a tick or, or a style choice that everyone comments upon I, I, I have a, a passage RPG. I want to read I want to read I want to read a passage <laughs> I found a passage that I want to read and I, 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 and I want to read it because I, I think that like all of, like I, I was going back and forth the whole time about um, oh this all this talk about simile and metaphor it's it's cringe but then is he also self aware of it and and because he uses it a lot in very like dramatic ways to the point that I sort of feel like. He even he, has a character who's a metaphor who points out that he's a- accidentally using a simile. <laughs> right. So he's like right. extra aware of it. Right. Yeah. Which again is it it's very Phantom Tollbooth. It right. cuz like in that story there are mathematical equations and fucking linguistic terms that are characters. Right. So this is after he comes out of the upside down and is in the pit. After this, I fell asleep. This is on page uh, 629. After this, I fell asleep. I had shed my leather jacket before entering the tunnel. What fate lay in store for that jacket of mine? Question mark. And the cold was starting to get to me. The thin sweater I had on over my t-shirt had been so shredded by the walls of the tunnel that it was a sweater in name only. Moreover, I had returned to the real world from the land of metaphor. In other words... Which is already hilarious. Yeah. In other words, I was back where time and temperature played their proper roles, yet my need for sleep went out. I drifted off, sitting there on the ground, leaning against the hard stone wall. It was a pure sleep, free of dream or deception. A solitary sleep beyond anyone's reach, like the Spanish gold resting on the floor of the Irish Sea. 
which like was a, a reference that was made earlier in the story to this he this book he was reading about shipwrecks and this Spanish armada sinking and the gold on the Irish Sea. And like it's this metaphor that's referencing something else in the book from another section and it's a very self-aware description of the simile. Uh, I, I just thought it worked on a lot of levels and it, the, it it's something that he's self-aware of in some some like very subtly clever ways to me. Well, yeah, let me respond to that because I, I underline that passage too and I I under I didn't underline but I thought about the passages before that he was re- referencing because I was trying when I read it I was trying to figure out like what the hell what what does this mean right now to me when he was talking about the Spanish Armada and like reading that that historical book i was like this means nothing to me right now uh and i thought that was very clever too because like when i read that i was like oh he's tying it into the narrative but the as- the actual book and the passage he was reading doesn't relate to the narrative of the, of the story it just relates to like this character's experience at that right. moment right? yeah exactly and i thought well, that was very weird and very clever well okay i think th- I-, I was just thinking about this now I think what I like the most about that uh, is there's there's cr- there's a critique, especially of Menshiki, who is like right this man. His name means without color. He's got white hair. He looks like Ryuichi Sakamoto, uh, the White Gatsby. Right, a man with with something. <laughs> the White Gatsby, the man, <laughs> so redundant. Um, the man. <laughs> right. The man with something missing, right? The gap in his heart, um, who lacks the soul of of the artist in some sense, uh, and so he's very good with like training his body. He's a mat- ultra materialist. He's like incredibly like capable with his hands, he, and he knows a bunch of data and information. And there's a bunch of parts where like people are engaging with data and like. Um, Maria in his house is like reading old National Geographics and she's like I don't know what this knowing about like the life cycle of a giraffe is going to do for me but like maybe at some point and there's a bunch of those moments where people are just sort of like saying facts. Menchiki reminds me of like a less political Mishima (laughs) yeah kind (laughs) of like super like self-disciplined but my only point being that like for that Spanish Armada thing uh, once again you have something that just might have been uh, information that you just sort of learn and now you can like, say it, but what he does is with it significantly is create a metaphor, and that like his, his you know, Menchiki is incapable of of, of kind of doing this thing which the narrator can, which is like transmute that data into these higher level forms of expression. But all right, yeah. boys, look, we are. Three minutes right, off let's, of three let's, hours. Let's oh fucking my God. let's yeah. roll it in. Oh. Woo. Okay. So I, uh, uh, yeah. Again, I I think this speaks to obviously long book, long episode. Right. But uh, watch it in two parts. You can pause. You can pause. I should have said that at the halfway mark. Welcome to the section. We just read another book. The Harry Potter Hat Breakdown. You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Casey. Casey. Special guest, Casey. 
Casey. All right, so this is the section where we put all of the characters from the book we just read in Harry Potter houses. Let's fucking go. Uh, Let's narrator. Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff, bro. 100% easy clap. Easy clap. Yep, no, no debate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Manchiki. Slytherin. 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 <laughs> he could be the next Voldemort, honestly. The eyes, um, the eyes have it. Hidden, <laughs> hidden agenda. No question Slytherin. Yeah. Mario Slytherin, Slytherin person I've ever seen. He's Marie, he, one of the ever. most Slytherin people we've read so far, I think. Yes. Hey, Marie. listen, Marie? Marie? Ravenclaw, Ravenclaw <laughs> easy. No, go. I would say oh, Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. or Gryffindor. Wait, Casey, you can't say or. I don't know. I'm not this. No. I'm not sorting hat, dude. <laughs> 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 don't reject the premise. Uh, I think she's I'm, Ravenclaw. She's curious. She goes, explores things, and is independent. She is also brave, so I get the Gryffindor. Paul, Paul I'm Matt, say Gryffindor. Go. She's Gryffindor. Griff, she's a Gryffindor. Fine. Brave, I, I quit bravery. the podcast. Casey can take my place. Bye. <laughs> bravery trumps the oh. curiosity in this who, instance. Who else, man? Fine. I think she's. I, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna be the odd man out here. I'm gonna say Maria is Ravenclaw. Okay. We're we're plowing through these right now. Aren't we? Well, it's easy clap. Um, yeah. That's. Those are the. I mean, we could talk about. We, I mean, we didn't even talk like about Shoko or or Masahiko, Masahiko, or Tomohiko, Masahiko. Oh, Tomohiko Mata is a Slytherin. What? The painter? What? Yeah, he's told. Yeah, he's no. a fucking Slytherin. Dude. No, dude, he's a Gryffindor. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's self-absorbed, but in like a noble way. Right. I don't think he's noble. He like hates his family. He doesn't hate his family. He, he just, just like, he, they're not. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Bad He's not bad Gryffindor. Maybe I'll say bad, bad Gryffindor, Gryffindor yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can do, do that. that. I, I I sign up for that. I'll sign up for that. Okay. Casey, what do you think? Tell me bad Gryffindor done. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, Paul left, so we can't finish. <laughs> <laughs> He's over. He's out. He's trying to Casey, you out. were you're replacing Paul's vote for this for going forward. This is genuine. And work. on the podcast, Paul's fired. Casey, you're hired. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. It's too Who else? Democracy. Uh, what about what about Yuzu? What about uh, the narrator's ex-wife, ex, and then future ex, and also future wife? Dude, I've got no fucking idea. Slytherin. Schemer. Slytherin. She's so weird. Yeah, she's kind of out for her own motives, like yeah. in, the, in the beginning. Uh, goes after that other guy. Yeah. Um, she who she is incredibly. Paul, what about Yuzu, the narrator's wife? I don't. Uh, there might not be enough information. I, would I say, say Slytherin, Hufflepuff. Definitely. <laughs> I'm gonna say Hufflepuff. I think she's Slytherin. Why? She could be because she Claw. because like Casey said, she's out for herself. She's very self. She's self-absorbed, and I mean, maybe she's not like calculating, but. She took the hotter guy. Yeah, but then she took the she took the her husband back at the end. Yeah, but only after he he like proved himself to her and like in, like potentially raped her in a dream. I don't know. And only after he asks and she's like, "Yeah, I'm chill with." She's that, like, "Yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah. I don't care." She's so detached. I'm gonna say she's an unpleasant Hufflepuff. Oh, okay. she just seems Fair like enough. a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, she does. She seems like zanned uh, uh, out. Yeah, she's zanned out of her mind is what that felt like. Yeah. 
All right, scores, boys. Let's drop them. Damn, there's so many things that I just thought of that I wish this is our I this is our an dude, hour to talk about. Well, but, okay. Yeah. For the record, Matt said we only needed one episode, and we've gone three hours. Yeah, it's Matt's fault. Okay, I'll, we could I probably will, go another hour. I bet. Like at least I will take this upon my shoulders. <laughs> but next time we do a book of this length, we should we have two episodes do for sure. Double, double yeah, for we're this. gonna have to. Can't um, rush themes. So Paul has to go last, as as is tradition on this show. The person who picked the book gives yeah. the score last. Um, I feel like I've gone first the last couple books, so I'm gonna uh, exercise my right to not go first. All right, I'll go. Um, I'm going to give this book a uh, three even. Nice. Easy clap. Mm -hmm. I'll go second. I I give this a 4.0. Nice. Woo! Then I have to go. That's probably Uh, your grade point average, wasn't it, Casey? Chad. Ooh. Yeah. No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm... uh, I've changed my... My score from the beginning of the episode. Sick. Uh, I talked myself Maybe. up slightly. It's a it's it's a three point five three for me. Mm. I talked nice. myself up too. Well, I'm the odd man out, and I have very uh, personal reasons for loving this book so much. It's a four point five for me. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, don't it. apologize. Art, what is it? Yeah, art, what is I'm it? I'm gonna be reading this book well into my hundreds. Wow! When the nanobots clean your yeah, and it's yeah. When it's okay. just my consciousness download downloaded into a flash drive. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this long ass episode. If you're listening this long, uh, you're gonna get everyone's penis length um, mm. right now. No, I'm just kidding. In you're centimeters, gonna, here we go. You're gonna get uh, the link to our Patreon, which is patreoncom spinecrackers, twittercom spinecrackers, instagramcom spinecrackers, facebookcom spinecrackers. Joining spinecrackers was the best decision of my life. That's what wow. I'm fucking talking about, and that's customer testimony. <laughs> that's what I'm goddamn talking about. And now we need a call oh, to yeah. action. Uh, so no, the uh, the join. extra content of the uh, the TBR just really added on. No. I appreciate that. Great Can additional it? book finds and reads. I want to see that from Matt and Paul as well. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, the yeah. Patreon acts also as my own personal OnlyFans, too. You forgot to mention that. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Paul does all kinds of lewd acts for small amounts of money. <laughs> <laughs> Bend over in my boxer shorts, uh, touch my toes in my boxer shorts. You know. <laughs> Casey, do you want to plug anything at all or anything going on with you? No, I mean, not it's, it's aside been, from it's been fun talking about and, and living your life. It's been talking. It's been fun talking about Murakami. Thank you joining, so much for being pod. here. Yeah, we really. I learned a few it. things, a few more analytical things that I wouldn't have otherwise. Known. So did we. That's all we can hope for. Mm. We appreciate being here, Casey. Yes. Thank you. We love you. Thank you. We love you, and we're in love with you. (laughs) We're in love with you. Okay, everybody. Thank you for staying this long. Bye. Bye.